BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. What did the Rams and Bengals think was going to happen? These are the Super Bowl teams scrimmaging together, practicing together. What did they think they were going to do? Sing Kumbaya and lock arms? Do a Rockettes dance at practice? No, 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 no. It was uh, scuffles and scrums and punches and ultimately Aaron Donald holding a couple of football helmets, swinging them like he was a gladiator in the middle of the practice field as the Rams and the Bengals uh, end up as an example of what can go wrong when you get teams who are participating together, playing together. What should happen to Aaron Donald? That's become a question to ask. I heard a national media member say it was assault on that football field. I'm not going to go as far as to say it was assault on the football field, but it was just an ugly example of a, uh, a, a, a scrimmage gone wrong, so to speak. And if you are a NFL fan, I got to ask you, do you want your teams practicing in such a fashion? Do you like them practicing in that way? Do you like that uh, the Rams and the Bengals wanted to get together and put their differences aside after a Super Bowl that was uh, very spirited. One team walked off Super Bowl champions, got the ring, got the parade, got the confetti, got the contracts, got the bonuses in their contract. The other team just walked off. And so they brought them back together for this uh, practice or scrimmage. And and this has become fashionable in the NFL and in, in some places in college. And, of course, in high school, you'll see jamborees at the beginning of the season where teams get together and they play against each other and, and such. But, man, oh, man, what should happen here? Sean McVay, the Rams coach, saying uh, he didn't see it. Uh, he doesn't think anybody got hurt. It disturbed him. Others calling for a suspension to Aaron Donald. I'm not going to go that far. I think you have to draw a difference between what happens in NFL games, what happens off the field when it comes to conduct, and what happens in a scrimmage setting. Like, we can't start arresting people for what they do on sports fields unless, until and unless, it, is, uh, it, it arises to the, uh, to the level of it being a cheap shot or being uh, players in the handshake line assaulting each other or whatnot. But if this is just... Good old, what did you expect during a scrimmage football action? I don't see what the harm is. I want your phone calls. What should happen to Aaron Donald? What should happen to the Rams? Do you dismiss it? Do you think he should be suspended? Can you hold players accountable for what happens in a practice or a scrimmage setting and and punish them with regular season stakes? 503-417-7575. I think it's kind of ridiculous to call for Aaron Donald to be suspended, but I'll entertain it. You could talk me off this position, maybe. I am uh, left wondering what the NFL thought was going to happen, what the Rams thought was going to happen, what the Bengals thought was going to happen. Totally predictable. Anybody who's been around the NFL, anybody who's been around football, anybody who knows human nature understands that this was ripe to explode into an embarrassing moment for the NFL. Is it really, though? And probably a moment that uh, scared Sean McVay as he saw uh, you know, a, a legendary defensive lineman, hit maybe his MVP from last season, in the middle of this thing, swinging helmets like he's on Game of Thrones. Aaron Donald, do not mess with that man. 
Uh, let's go back in studio. Steven, Peter Sampson, what do you make of this scrum? Peter, that was your team out there. Yeah, I feel like uh, this reminds me of uh, back in college taking business ethics classes where you have to lay out all your conflicts of interest before you give your take. I am a Rams fan. I'm an Aaron Donald fan. So automatically, I think, man, give me a break. This is preseason. You've got two teams that just had a hard-fought Super Bowl. Aaron Donald is the dude that single-handedly won that game for the Rams with those last two plays. Of course, they're going to be fired up. I don't know why they were put together. But again, and it might be my fandom talking, John, just let it go. I mean, maybe you find the guy. The Rams certainly aren't going to suspend him. They're trying to run it back. And if you're the league... I think you have to point the finger at yourself. I think you hit it on the head. What did you expect? But the thing is, is about it is they want to cut back on preseason games. And so I think for an effort to cut back in preseason, they're going to have these joint practices. And so this is going to happen. I think I kind of against both of you. I think he may, he should get suspended for a game, maybe two, because it was caught on video. If it wasn't caught on video and it was just, oh, this happened at this Ram Bengals practice, that's a little different. But since there is video, it's like the Ray Rice situation. He was suspended for a few games. The video comes out. He's basically you know, outlawed from the league. He can't come back. I think the video makes it look much worse because there was an aggression there. There was a lot of aggression with two different helmets that he ripped off. I don't know, man. I think it's a bad, like you, John, you said, you don't know if it's a bad look for the league. I think it is a bad look for the league. And I think he kind of should get suspended just because the video is very, I mean, it's kind of gnarly. It's pretty gnarly, man. Yeah, and I think, you know, look, this stuff happens. It happens within teams that aren't at each other's throat in a Super Bowl and then go off into an offseason and think about, hey, you know, what could I have done? Uh, you know, why did they get the parade? How close were we ultimately to winning that game and whatnot? But I think when you bring these teams back together, there's just some bad feelings. And plus, we're at the part of training camp where jobs are on the line. Livelihoods are on the line. There are some guys inside that training camp that, are going to lose their jobs here, and they're going to get cut. And there are others who are going, hey, I'm in here against an all-world defensive tackle, Aaron Donald. I got an opportunity to show my coaches that I can still play. And, oh, by the way, there might have just been some lingering feelings from that Super Bowl that were left over. So I think there was a lot of tentacles to this thing. I, I hesitate. Like, we have all seen cases where in high school games, in you know, high school basketball game, for example, we saw a case a couple years ago where there was a uh, player on the court who, who slugged another player, just roundhouse, you know, girls' basketball game, uh, took a shot at another player, and you heard the mom in the stands kind of egging it on or uh, escalating it, telling her, get her. Uh, we have seen cases uh, with Oregon and LeGarrette Blunt and Boise State where Byron Hout got, uh, got slugged in the handshake line after the game. I don't know what he said, but, you know, did he have it coming or not? And I, and I feel differently about those kinds of things because they're cheap shots. It was a cheap shot. LeGarrette Blunt probably should have just said nothing and walked on. You know, you just got beat in the game and whatever. But, you know, he took a punt, threw a punch at Byron Howard, and I'm sure if he could unwind it, he would uh, have not have done what he did because I think it cost LeGarrette Blunt some money. It cost him, uh, you know, his, his entry into the NFL was a little more difficult. We all remember him having to sit out that season. So I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. But there's stuff that happens in his scrimmages in basketball games and in football games uh, between teammates all the time that isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily rise to the level of a cheap shot or whatever it's just good clean hard competition and some bad lingering feelings that you guys been practicing against each other for weeks and weeks and weeks but you know i also think we're in a time now where we've got cell phones and fans watching these practices and scrimmages 
are filming it. And so I think in years past, this kind of stuff never would have got out, uh, but it is out there now. I think if you start suspending guys for what happens in these scrimmages, I think if you're Roger Goodell, you're going to open a can of worms, aren't you, Steven? I mean, maybe, but I think this is a little, it was a little different because he's swinging helmets. I I, mean, I understand the regular fights. I think most fans understand the fights, but it's it's the fact that he was using the helmet as a weapon, and we've seen that before with Miles Garrett. I know it's a different situation, but we saw with Miles Garrett try to you know decapitate uh, Mason Rudolph. Like I just think he he using the weapon, being it on film like that, it just seems a little different to me, John. So I think it's kind of called for for this like a one game suspension, not a huge one, but he, I think Goodell's got to you know put it down and say we can't be having full blown melees out there on the field, even if it is practice, because it is such a visible product now, now that all the fans are there watching these joint practices. 503-417-7575. Who do you agree with? Steven's saying uh, Aaron Donald should face the music. Peter and I are saying, nah, it goes too far. Peter, at what point would you say Aaron Donald should face some music? <laughs> Never. Go Rams. But uh, that, be- <laughs> <laughs> that being said, I mean, I guess what I would really need to see, I saw the video. It was, it was certainly clear he was swinging a helmet, but it wasn't clear I mean, did he knock a dude out? Did he even clearly make contact? Was the person he made contact with, were they wearing a helmet or not? I would kind of see need to see details on that. But, I mean, there would have to be a pretty substantial injury there. Like, like the guy went down with a broken nose or he got a concussion or, you know, some very, you know, something racial happened. You know, something that really crosses that line. So I'm good with him taking a relatively hefty fine, but I just don't see it being a one-game suspension. 503-417-7575. We've got a great show for you today. I'll take your phone calls. We'll talk about Chet Holmgren. It looks like it's uh, bad news for the Oklahoma City uh, basketball team and their prize draft pick. We'll talk about the latest uh, with your college football landscape, and we'll turn the focus to the start of the Pac-12 season. We'll talk about players and games themselves. All of that ahead on today's show. If you're a Beaver fan, if you're a Duck fan, if you're a fan of the Pac-12, this show is for you. Leave it here. You got the BFT statewide on the BFT radio network. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750, the game. Well, bad news for the Oklahoma City fans, and if you're a Blazer fan, you can probably relate to the frustration that is going on in Oklahoma City. Uh, Chet Holmgren, their rookie draft pick, will miss the entire basketball season, the entire NBA season, with a foot injury that he suffered in a pro-am basketball game over the weekend. Um, He has uh, an injury in his right foot. Number two pick in the uh, draft was was, uh, in the pro-am event that Jamal Crawford puts on in Seattle. He was defending LeBron James on a fast break. And, uh, uh, the, the, you know, Oklahoma City Thunder general manager Sam Presti issued a statement, probably not the statement that he had when he heard the news, but he gathered himself and he said, quote, certainly we're disappointed for Chet, especially given the excitement he had about getting on the floor with his teammates this season. We know Chet has a long career ahead of him within our organization and the Oklahoma City community. One of the things that most impressed us during the process of selecting Chet was his determination and focus. We expect that same tenacity will carry him through this period of time as we work together and support him during his rehabilitation. Now, um, he will have foot surgery, 
The Thunder have consulted with uh, some foot specialists around the country. Uh, he has a ruptured tendon in his foot, not a fracture, and uh, they are they are saying he's going to miss the season. Now, all right, I'm going to go silver lining here in this one. You guys tell me if I'm nuts. Is it possible that the seven-foot-whatever Chet Holmgren, who weighs 195 pounds, he's 7'1", 195, is it possible that this injury is a benefit to him in some weird way in that he's going to get a year to mature, still a young guy, early entry candidate. He's going to get a year to work out. He's going to get a year in the weight room. He's going to get a year to work with the nutritionists that the Thunder have. And is it possible that this is going to be a guy who gets stronger and more physical and more uh, mature in this year off? I think it's possible, but I don't agree with it. And the reason I don't is because it's a foot injury for a big guy. And that's the one that always scares me is those big guys when you're seven feet tall and you have a feet problem already, like we've seen it in a lot of big men in the NBA over over time. And so th- this really scares me for Chet Holmgren because he's going to need his feet really badly, uh, especially with the way he moves. Like that's that's one of his skills that he has is he can move pretty well for his seven-footer. If that foot, you know, we don't know if it's going to heal for sure. Uh, I I just think it's it's just bad news. I think it would be better just to be on the court, get that experience right away. But it's definitely possible. Uh, I just don't. I don't like. I think it's I think it's bad news for Chet. And I, I it sucks because I wanted to see how he did this year because I wasn't the biggest Chet fan coming in, and I wanted to see if a guy like that could actually work in the NBA. And it seems like right now, you know, if you're that skinny, you're that small, you're gonna have some problems. And Chet going forward is gonna have some problems. I think the news that it's uh that it's the ligament tear and not a fracture. I know the LeFranc fracture, you get so little blood flow there. It takes forever to heal if it ever heals at all. So I mean, I guess maybe you could be optimistic about it and you can hope that it's more of a Joel Embiid situation rather than a yeah, Walton, the the list goes on and on. And we all know look, he needs to add size, but I mean, one thing that no one denies about Chet Holmgren, whether or not they think he can play in the NBA is that the dude's a competitor, he's impossible to keep out out of the gym. I hope mentally he's able to go through this. Man, you know he's hyped. He's ready to go start his career, prove the doubters wrong, of which there are plenty, and now he's got a year-long setback, and he has to manage that. It, it's really going to be tough, but you do hope that he can get his body right. He can add a few pounds of muscle because I also was really curious to see not just the offensive weapons, but man, he was struggling you know, against Memphis, you know, guarding their big man in Portland in the, uh, in the, uh, the Portland uh, segment of the tournament in March Madness. How's he going to do against DeAndre Ayton? You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's a, it's a bummer that we're seeing that put off by year, but maybe he can work on that. John, I'm going to hope with you that this is maybe a benefit. I, I, I look at him, and I, I did not see an NBA-ready player, anywhere near an NBA-ready player in the NCAA tournament. And I left watching uh, – I'm blanking on the big guy from uh, from Memphis. Uh, Durant. The, Jalen Durant. Yeah, yeah. He, he, I mean, he pushed Holmgren around. He, play, he played him possession for possession – and I wondered, I you know, in that game, if you're just drafting for, uh, you know, a college tournament, you know, I would take, I would really have questions on whether or not Holmgren would be the right guy. Now he's a, he's got huge upside, and I get why Oklahoma City picked him. You get a guy who can who can move the way he moves and run in the open court and shoot a little bit, and he's seven foot one. I get it, but and maybe I'm scarred from Greg Oden and Joel Prisbilla's patellar tendon and Bill Walton's feet, uh, and Sam Bowie uh, falling like a tree on the court. You know, it's maybe I'm scarred from all that, but 
I was skeptical to begin with. I thought he was going to have a, a really rough introduction his rookie year in the league. And I think I think it was going to be a big growth curve for him. I don't I don't wish injury on anybody, and I agree with you, Stephen, to a point like you don't want to see a big guy on his feet. But I'm kind of wondering, like, if we're going to look back five years from now, I guess it's the only angle that Sam Presti's got, going to look back five years from now and go, you know what, it wasn't so bad that he missed that rookie year because um, it was uh, – it was an opportunity for him to not, uh, you know, not be exposed as a young player. He gets another year to kind of sit around in the way that C.J. McCollum got to sit around. But again, C.J. was—he's a different player than Chet Holmgren. Let's go to the phone lines. Mike is in Portland. Mike, welcome to the conversation. Hey, John. I want to tell you a, a prediction that I see coming with NBA basketball. Okay. I predict that within the next five years, you're going to see a female in the NBA. Because the NBA has digressed so much. You know, back in the day, they said that European ball players couldn't play in the NBA. And I think mm-hmm. when they had Drazen Petrovic and those kind of guys, there's only about five European ball players in the whole NBA. But now they're full of European ball players because NBA level has dropped. And they are already seeing players like Brittany Griner that she can outplay some NBA ball players now. So I'm thinking, and I predict this, that in the next five years, you're going to see a female in the NBA because it's going downhill. Talk to you later, man. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we're going to see that. I, I just think there's a big difference between the athleticism of an NBA player and a WNBA player. I, I think the WNBA game's getting better. Sabrina Ionescu is fun to watch. Uh, you know, it, I think it's come a long way, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm not predict. I'm not ready to join that prediction. I think it's it's ridiculous to to think that that could happen. And I think there would be outcry, uh, you know, with people going, "No, we don't want this." And you know, what are you doing? I do think you're going to see, though. Uh, I think you're going to see NBA teams take a closer look at what guys are doing in the off season. You know, we were talking in that first segment about the NFL and the practices and the scrimmages. I do think you're going to get the NFL thinking harder about what they might do to keep uh, teams from uh, from situations escalating to Aaron Donald, you know, swinging helmets at people. I, I do think NBA teams are also going to talk to their players about, hey, what are you doing in the offseason? Yeah, we'd prefer that you didn't do that. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, I think so. And I, I don't know how I feel about it because I feel like it's kind of up to the player, right? Like at some point you need to play basketball to get better. You can only do so many drills. You can only work out so much and get better. You have to try things on the court. You have to try out new things that you've been working on against live action. So it's really hard to say, like, you can't go out and you play in these pro-ams when you're actually playing against other NBA guys that are at your same level. Now, I understand if you're going to be playing against guys like me or some joker out there that's going to try to hurt you or go after you, but when you're playing against other NBA guys, I think it's going to be hard for teams to be like, no, you can't do this. Because the players got to work on their game somehow, and it's not just in the gym by themselves. It's got to be full court, live action, and I think these programs are actually good because of it. But like you said, it could just have more injuries because their competitive nature comes out when they're playing against a guy like LeBron James or Jason Tatum. And you're Chet Holmgren. You want to prove yourself against those guys. So you know, it's it's a it's a fine line, but I think it's going to be hard for the players 
to agree to those type of deals. The one thing that makes me really nervous about that is, I mean, look, I agree, players need to play. It's the only way you get better. But you wonder about the conditions. At that game that Holmgren injured himself in, man, that game had to be called. There ended up condensation all over the the, the court. You wonder if they can put some sort of quality control in there. Because, you know, it, was, it that wasn't an NBA arena. It was a gym. It was, it was packed. Uh, it was Seattle Pacific, I believe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, it's great facilities. It's not, uh, it's not the Moda Center. So I wonder if they want to maybe watch that a little more carefully. Hey, you can have these pro-ams, the, you know, the proceeds going to charity, all that. But we need to make sure that everything's in tip-top shape because these are massive, massive investments. Yeah, I, I think to a, an extent you're going to see this. But I wonder about the collective bargaining agreement. I took a look at it last night, and I think it's really difficult because I think they're going to have a hard time in this cycle talking to players about what you do. And we talked about this yesterday, Stephen. You were part of this conversation yesterday where we were sort of just debating, like, you know, there's in basketball the problem is you got to play in the offseason to get in basketball shape. Baseball, you can, you can throw pitchers and catchers. You can get in the cage and hit. You can take batting practice. You can work on fielding ground balls. Um, with the NFL and the NBA, you have to play. You have to line up for a certain period of time over a couple of weeks at least and get yourself into playing shape. And especially in basketball and the NBA, it's so skillful, right? Like, all the players are so skilled now. You go and you practice these moves with your trainer, and that's great. But it's one on nothing. It's You're playing against a guy holding a broom up in the air. It's just different, right? When you have a live action, you have a live defender going against you, and you've got to build that confidence. And, I mean, I know from experience, like, I learned some moves that I could do by myself, but I would be afraid to do them in the games because I wasn't good at them. Like, I have to keep working on it. And so I do think the live-action bullets are just huge, especially in basketball, where these guys are so skillful and they keep coming up with these new moves. they got to practice them somehow. And it, it's one-on-zero or one-on-one against your trainer. It's not going to work. It's got to be against you know really good talent. And that's why I think these, like, these pro-ams and these open gyms are good for players, and it's kind of needed in basketball. I want you to leave it here. Tyson Alger of the I-5 Corridor is going to be along to talk about the Ducks and the Beavers and his one-year anniversary of the I-5 Corridor. Alger next. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. One of my good friends who is a terrific writer and a good human being, Tyson Alger, left The Athletic uh, more than a year ago and embarked on his own journey. I'm familiar with this. I've done it myself. Tyson Alger started the I-5 Corridor, and i got to be honest with you, when I went to go and look and say, hey, do I want to go do johnconzano.com, I called up Tyson Alger. I said, how's it going? Tell me what I need to know. And Tyson Alger has been killing it. He covers everything on the I-5 Corridor. You can go to i5corridor.com if you want to read him. And here to talk about it, the great Tyson Alger celebrating an anniversary. Happy anniversary. Hey, thanks, thanks a lot, John. That was, that was uh, more, than, more than I deserved. I appreciate that, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I, uh, I am curious to know what you've learned in the last year. Curious to know about that first maybe event that you covered versus – you know, what you're doing now and, and how you're feeling about everything. And, and you're doing a great job. And for people who don't know, if you want to know what's going on from Seattle down to Eugene and even beyond, uh, you uh, should read i5corridor.com. But, Tyson, tell us about it. 
Yeah, you know, it was it was something that was uh, pretty darn nerve wracking a year ago when when I launched this thing because I mean, as as you experienced back in March, uh, you know, it's it's one of these things to have this idea, but then once you actually you know kind of pull the cord and, and you're out there on your own, it's uh, you're out there on your own. But I, I I think the one thing that I've kind of really learned over this last year of of being a, a business owner and and running this thing on my own is you know take take advantage when people offer help and. and um, you know, say they, they have interest or, or, or just say they, they, they want to be a part of what you're doing because I, I think a lot of us are really um, proud of what we do and maybe too proud at times. And there's there's a lot of people out there in this world and in this city that, that really want uh, want to help you succeed. And I think that's kind of been my biggest thing that I've taken away, just either between, you know, the, the hundreds of subscribers that we've been able to generate or, or the people who have been willing to take a look at stories just to proofread because – we don't have editors anymore or even, you know, just someone who's been willing to uh, lend a ear to, uh, you know, listen, listen to me complain about problems. It's been, uh, it's been quite, quite the learning experience. And I'm, I'm awfully proud to be here uh, a, a year later and, and uh, talking on your show and, 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 you know, people like you and then everyone else who's, who's helped, uh, help promote this thing. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for, for all the help. So, so thanks a lot, man. I think the time is right, right? I mean, you know, I think readers now, uh, they just want to read good content. And I think they're getting from a lot of the traditional news sources, they're getting, um, you know, a, uh, co- you know a, a, a collaboration of national news stories, links to other stories. There's very little original reporting that is going on in some of the newsrooms because of the shrinking size. And so... I, there's no other way to put it. I mean, there's just there's a lot of crap out there. And so I think people are willing to support what they know is good original reporting. And you're doing that. And you're telling good stories. And so I think, you know, the time is right for it. But when you embarked on it, was it nervous at all? Were you anxious? Were you nervous about it working? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, like the, the 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 most unfortunate thing about the time when I left the athletic is for the first three years that I was at the athletic, I still had to explain to people what it was, or that it wasn't the Atlantic, or you know, all these sorts of things. It was, you know, it's just that name recognition of saying like, "Hi, I'm Tyson Alger, and I work for so and so." And you know, when I left left the athletic, they were getting close to the New York Times deal, like they had established themselves, and it was it was kind of uh, really. Uh, anxiety-inducing, leaving that, and then just basically having everything be, uh, I mean, uh, determined off of your reputation and the relationships that you've developed. And so, you know, I, I wrote about this in my my one-year review column, but, like, even just simple things like getting credentialed. Like, when I got credentialed for the Ohio State game last year, I was I was over the moon just because I was, you know, I'm, I'm confident in my abilities and how I've gone about my job for the last year, but when you're on your own, you always kind of have that little nagging feeling of, like, oh, I, I hope this works. And, uh, yeah, it, it's uh, – <laughs> thankfully, more often than not, we've, we've had the answer to that being, being yes, that it does work, than, than no the last the last year. Give me an idea, you know, I think the first game you were credentialed for as the I-5 corridor was the Ohio State-Oregon game. Is that right? That, so I, I went to the first Oregon home game, but, like, the Ohio State one was, like, the first one that I had been credentialed for that wasn't just, like, the Oregon SIDs that I knew <laughs> uh, credentialing me. That was, that was like, the first, like, it, it felt like I made it moment, definitely for the company. 
give me an idea of, you know, were you nervous that you would be recognized? Like, you know, Taiwan's always nervous that the United Nations is not going to recognize them as a country and you know, the People's <laughs> Republic of China. And I kind of wondered, I wondered myself, as JohnConzano.com, would the Oregon Ducks, would Oregon State, uh, would they recognize me? Would they give me a credential? And, and I found that, uh, as JohnConzano.com, that... You know, everybody just went, okay, yeah, it's just we'll change your affiliation. And, and everybody, you know, I'm, I'm headed to Georgia as you are to cover Oregon and, and Georgia. Yeah, I, I think the, the most nerve-wracking moment I actually had, it was in the post-game press conference at the Ohio State game. And it was, the, and it was one of those situations where you had to raise your hand to get the microphone, and they, they told you to introduce yourself and your affiliation before you ask your question. And that was the first time that I had really said, I think I five corridor publicly in, in that sort of setting. And, you know, there was obviously some eyeballs on that too, because of Oregon's upset win. And, uh, you know, I was just waiting for somebody to be like the I five, what, you know, there, there's just kind of a lot of uh, hesitancy there, but, um, you know, the kind of going back to, you know, you being credentialed at, at Georgia and all these sorts of things, you know, I, I think we've, we've moved into an era as you were saying, where, you know, it's it's not the traditional newspaper setup anymore, but I, I think fans do still enjoy like the same type of quality writing and the kind of the relationship and attachment they get to writers. And so it's kind of it's almost similar to uh, the television market now and that it's all a cart. You know, people go out and, and seek the, the news and, and the writers and kind of the type of storytelling. Uh, that they want to see and you know fortunately I think you and I are both seeing that there there definitely still is a demand for for people who just want to tell tell good quality reported stories uh, in, in the Pacific Northwest here. Tyson Alger I-5 Corridor is with us let's talk about the teams Dan Lanning today told reporters that he will not uh, issue a depth chart with any teeth to it Jonathan Smith's doing the same thing but it's not as loud because I think there's less attention on him um, there's going to be a lot of it's this guy or that guy. It's Tyson Alger or it's Peter Sampson at right tackle. Like, we're not going to tell people. Dan Lanning said there's no advantage to it. I've always believed that, but it's interesting to hear a coach say it. Yeah, it's it's, it's always one of those kind of funny things because, you know, I, I I truly do believe that if a coach is paranoid about, you know, something that appears in the I-5 corridor giving Georgia an edge, they give me way too much credit for what I know about football. Um, but again, you know, we, we are in a time where if they don't have to give up the information, if they do think it gives them an edge, like, sure, why not? Like, fortunately that, you know, those aren't necessarily the stories that I'm super interested in anymore these days. Like, you know, you'll show up on Saturday and somebody's going to be playing quarterback and, and we'll write about that afterwards. But it, it has been fascinating to watch Wayne and kind of balance that. Cause I know he wants to be like that. You know, he's in his first year as a coach. He wants to win over the fan base. He, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, things that he has to do to kind of generate that positive PR. But you know, the the press conferences and, and the way that he goes about handling his team, like he's doing that exactly how he wants, and he's not making any concessions towards the media or anything. Tyson, how good is Dan Lanning going to be in this first year? I think he's going to be pretty good, John. Like I, I like I'm not I'm not coming on here and predicting that they're going to beat Georgia in this game, but I think they're going to be pretty darn competitive. Uh, I really like the energy around this team. I just think kind of a cloud's lifted from last year, and and when you kind of look at the nuts and bolts of that, like this this was a team last year that for three quarters of the season was being considered a, a playoff team. I mean that Ohio State game happened, and that game happened without Kayvon Thibodeau. Like there's a lot of talent on this roster, and I think if you're able to channel it in the right direction and and get a coach in there who who can coach, um, I, I think uh, I think a Pac-12 
Pac-12 title appearance at, at very least is is within the grasp of this team, if if not more. Because I, I do think that if they if they do hit something with the quarterback here, and and, and it's either Bonex or Ty Thompson, and, and something works, I I think this team has a really high ceiling that they can play into. I'm going to push back here a little bit. Bo Nix or Ty Thompson? Is there any way Bo Nix doesn't start the opener? I don't think so. <laughs> like, you know, I, I still I still come back to the thought process of, you know, you don't bring in a quarterback who already has a relationship with your offensive coordinator, who has that much experience, who who is frankly risking a lot by, by upending his career. I just I don't think you bring that guy in if he's not the guy week one. You know, I, I think that it... it it keeps things kind of mysterious here going into Saturday, but yeah, I, I 100% expect it to be Bo Nix. And, you know, if if for, for some crazy reason it's not Bo Nix, it means Ty Thompson's at least at that baseline, you would hope. So, um, yeah, I, I, won't be, I won't be shocked to see Bo playing on Saturday. Any concerns about the offense in general? I, I talked to Dan Lanning on Sunday, and just for a few minutes on the phone, and – he seemed concerned about the offensive performance in the scrimmage. And, you know, he's a defensive-minded guy, but I can tell that his anxiety may be on the offensive side of the ball right now. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I think this is the most talented receiving core Oregon's had in a really long time, but none of these guys have ever had to catch a ball when it meant something. You know, they, the, the Ducks are finally moving out of, like, the Johnny Johnson, Jalen Red era. You're, you're going to see guys like Dante Thornton and Troy Franklin become, you know, guys whose whose names used to be really big in recruiting circles, and, and now they're going to have to be really big in Pac-12 play. And you know, while while you do have, I think I believe five scholarship running backs at this point, you know, replacing Travis Dye and C.J. Burdell, that was proven production the Ducks have had. And you know, this this is a veteran offensive line, but it also wasn't like the offensive line they were talking about as one of the best in the conference last year. So there's there's still a lot of room that that they need for guys to improve upon and to get better. And so I, I definitely think, especially with some of the bodies they have on defense, that offense probably is more of a question. But, you know, when you have Noah Sewell and, and Justin Flo in the front seven on the other side, like I, I think the offense would be the question. <laughs> yeah, and I think, too, you know, let's talk about those guys. Justin Flo and Noah Sewell, how good can they be? I, I think they can be a program-changing type of pair. You know, I, I, Oregon has had some freak freak athletes on its defense over the years. Kiko Alonso, um, I'm not going to th- run through all the names here, but it doesn't feel like they've ever had, like, two of those guys at the same time. And, you know, for as much as people have talked up Noah Sewell this uh, preseason, you know, I think he's a first-team preseason All-American guy. He's more than likely going to be a first-team All-Pac-12 guy. Like, Justin Flo is as talented or more talented than him. We just haven't seen him put it to together yet due to injury i mean this dude had 14 tackles in the one game he's played in his career um i think if you can combine those guys and have a completely healthy season that's just a look a front seven look that i don't think i've ever really seen from the ducks before and then you mix in the fact that brandon dorless is a pretty beefy dude at defensive end and even in the secondary christian gonzalez the colorado transfer like that's a big physical guy like i I think this could be a really physical defense that really kind of plays into the pedigree that lanning established while he was at georgia yeah, I, I think this Georgia game is interesting. I want to talk more about it. Can you hold over for one more segment? Because I want to ask you what you think is going to happen in the opening week. And then I want to ask you about Oregon State. I'm hearing some good things about their defense. Tyson, you got time for one more? Yeah, let's do it. Tyson Alger, I-5 Corridor, is going to stay here. We have more on the Ducks and the Beavers. Leave it here. 
Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Tyson Alger of the I-5 Corridor has been kind enough to hold through the commercial break. Thank you, Tyson. Probably yeah, wanted to make... That probably made you want to buy a bunch of products, but uh, I appreciate you doing it and sticking around. Uh, let me ask you, um, let's talk about the opener for Oregon. And uh, They go to Georgia to play against Georgia. Dan Lanning, former team, what's going to happen? I think that Oregon is going to look pretty competent in this game. I think they're going to be aggressive against a defense that's going to have a lot of new starters, even though those starters are very talented. And I think ultimately the Ducks are going to lose by about 10 points. You know, I, I think that we're looking at like a 27-17 type of game. Um, you know, it's, it's Georgia Georgia basically put out a half an entire first round with that defense that they graduated. But, you know, if you go back and look at the last four or five years of 247 recruiting rankings, you know, for as good as Oregon's been the last four years, like, program changing good Oregon's been the last few years Georgia's been better at every step along the way so you know as as, as talented as this Oregon team is it's, it's going to be awfully hard for them to just even out physical Georgia in this game especially in you know it's technically a neutral neutral turf but that's that's definitely in, in Georgia country so I, I think we'll I think we'll come away from that game feeling impressed about Oregon I think we're going to look at them and say like this was a well-coached game but I just I just don't think Oregon has the gas to, to run with the Bulldogs here go back to that last point well-coached game tell me what you need to see from Dan Lanning that makes you hopeful like Oregon could win nine or ten games I just, I, I just want a coach who doesn't look like he's coaching his first game there you know that, that was the big concern about Lanning coming in is not only the fact that you know he's not from around here but his, his only head coaching experience as he said is I think was an intramural game uh, intramural football back in back in high school you know he's He's renowned as a incredible football defensive mind. He's incredibly well organized. He's always been planning for this moment. Um, there's a lot of coaches that have planned for that first game, and then they get out there, and it, it's it's deer in the headlights. And I, I just don't get the sense that that's Dan Lanning. You know, he's for as young as he is, 35, 36. He's 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 very well. Um, he just presents himself really well, and then I think that what we're going to see from this football team is, is a football team that, that knows its calls, knows its signals, it communicates well, and, and they get out and they play aggressive football, like Manning said back in December when he was, when he was hired. Tyson Alger, I-5 Corridor with us. Let's shift to the Beavers. I'm hearing a lot from people who have been at practices say who are telling me uh, that the Beavers look really good on defense. Is it possible this could be their best defensive team in some time? Isn't it crazy that both the Ducks and Beavers this year could have successful seasons that are propelled by their defenses? Like I, I can't think of, of the last time Oregon State even had a defense worth mentioning, and that's just a credit to, to what Jonathan Smith has done in his four or five years as head coach of Oregon State. You know, They really rebuilt that program. They didn't rush things, and, and now they do have a, a defense that has game experience. I believe they have like all top all seven of their defensive backs in terms of playing time coming back from last season. Uh, they, they have Omar Spites coming back at linebacker. Like they have guys that you can actually name and say like these guys have played legitimate college football. They have experience. Uh, they're not gonna they're not gonna be green out there. And and I think just that combined with the fact that Smith always has a good offense. You know we're we're going to need to see Chance Nolan take take another step this year. But 
Uh, I, I like Oregon State to repeat for a bowl game. I, I like I like them as a, a dark horse contender to, to contend for the Pac-12 title game appearance. I, I think things are. I think we're beyond the point in Corvallis where you have to wonder whether or not you know this is going to be a year worth paying attention to or not. Like I, I think the rebuild is over, and now it's just okay. Let's see. Let's see how high they can build the ceiling. Tyson, you know they they lack a big play receiver. And I think that yeah. will ultimately – it hurts Chance Nolan. I think it makes Chance Nolan look limited when he doesn't have a guy that can get down the field, take the top off the defense. If they're playing in that mid-range game where they're, they're hitting tight ends and short routes with wide receivers, I think it, it puts the defense in a position where it can really do some things that, that limit Chance Nolan. Uh, do they have a guy – is it Anthony Gold? Is it someone else who can you know, get down the field and hurt teams that want to – come up with safeties and try to take away those intermediate routes. Yeah, you know, I I, I want to see what Luke Musgrave does this year at, at tight end. I know he's not necessarily exactly what you're talking about in terms of like the go downfield guy, but boy, just seeing him around practice, he's he's one of the more physical guys that I've seen and you know, it's uh, whether, you know, the Oregon State can rely on like Trayshawn Harrison or Tyshawn Lindsay or or Gould to kind of make that next step up. I, I think it's I think it's both on them and the quarterback. You know, that was something that Smith talked a lot about in, in spring ball was just how they needed to, to be more effective in the passing game and creating those explosive plays. And, you know, that's that's kind of uh, the, the magic term that you hear all across college football right now is explosive plays. I mean, heck, we've heard Kenny Dillingham talk about that just about every every time he's talked at, down in Eugene. So, um, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll see with Oregon State. The, the tough thing with them is, you know, they're, they're never going to be the program that all of a sudden is unveiling that new five-star talent that they, they picked up in the offseason. You know, it's, it's they have to build it with three, mainly three stars, occasionally a four-star. And whereas you look in Eugene and, uh, boy, that wide receiver room the Ducks have is all, all four-stars. I, I think every single guy in the 2 deep is a, a blue chip, and that just kind of really highlights the difference between uh, just the talent discrepancies between uh, Eugene and Corvallis right now. Tyson Alger, I-5 Corridor, celebrating his one-year anniversary of his launch of his independent endeavor, covering everything on the I-5 Corridor. You, uh, you are now many, many events into being credentialed, and uh, you are now covering this Georgia-Oregon game, I think, with multiple reporters, are you not? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, Shane, Shane Hoffman, who's been contributing uh, throughout the year to the corridor, he's uh, he's going to be down there, and uh, we'll have we'll have two bylines coming from Georgia, which I'm excited about. I, I am excited to read this stuff. All right, give tell people how they can find you and what it means to you when you see them support. Yeah, it's 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 so awesome. I mean, it, if you want to read my work, it's at i five corridor dot com, and you know, it was the coolest thing um, on on Tuesday when when I had the one year anniversary of the site, and just to see the amount of people who renewed their one year subscriptions, um, that was something that I was really worried about, um, especially going into the second year, and uh, I was I was blown away by the support and. You know, just every single one of those subscriptions that come in uh, allows me to keep keep writing these stories and, and to give me the ability to uh, try try to look at things from a little bit of a different angle than the, the traditional day to day media. So uh, much 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 appreciation to, to everyone that's that's read and subscribed or, or had me on the radio show. And uh, uh, you know, if anyone's listening uh, to tonight from six p.m. on at, at Lombard House in North Portland, we're just going to be be hanging out and and talking about the football season. So feel free to stop by and say hello, and uh, we can talk football or, or whatever you want. So. 
Tyson Alger, I-5 Corridor. Thank you and congratulations. Hey, thanks a lot, John. There he is. Good stuff. Support him. Look, give him a give him an opportunity to win you over. Read him. You know, it's like I've been telling people, you know, when I launched johnconzano.com, I said, listen, free subscriptions, paid subscriptions, do what works for you. Uh, Tyson Alger has some free content on i5corridor.com. He has some paid content on i5corridor.com. But by and large, you are supporting uh, journalism and you're supporting uh, independent thinking and you're supporting somebody who is uh, trying to cover the things you care about. So give it an opportunity and give it some of your attention. Coming up in the uh, 4 o'clock hour, hour number two of the show, Nick Daschle of the Oregonian will be joining us to talk about Oregon State specifically. i got to tell you, I have been hearing a lot of chatter from people that I trust who have watched Oregon State scrimmage or practice. And they let some coaches in there, they let them watch them practice. I have one longtime veteran coach who has appeared many times on this show, not naming his name, who yesterday texted me and said, hey, I went to Oregon State practice. They are big. They are faster. Defensively, they look good. But do they have a wide receiver that can hurt defenses? That's a question. Now, Anthony Gold's going to be that guy that Oregon State will hold up because he can fly. But he's not Brandon Cooks. You know, he's not even a Mike Hass down the field. Can Jonathan Smith find a receiver that will punish defenses for creeping up and taking away those intermediate routes that Luke Musgraves and others um, feast on? So I think that's the key. And I think last year at times, it made Oregon State look uh, station to station, so to speak. I think it hurt Chance Nolan when he needed to come up with a big play, and all of a sudden he looked down the field and, you know, both those safeties are creeping up you know, 10, 12 yards deep from the line of scrimmage and not at all worried about getting beat deep. What's the number one rule? They they tell even, you know, youth football safeties and corners, don't get beat deep. Well, if you don't have a guy that can fly and stretch defenses, I think you are in trouble in college football. The name of the game is take the top off the defense and make it make everything underneath easy. Oregon State faces that this season. Coming up, Punch It Audio plus Nick Daschle. Leave it here. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Good stuff in hour number one, Tyson Alger. Joined us, talked about the Ducks. Dan Lanning coming forth saying, hey, I, you know, I don't need to tell you state secrets. It's not in Oregon's best interest to tell you who's going to start. But I'll tell you this. If it's not Bo Nix at quarterback in the opener, then who the hell is it? Like, how, do, how is that going to be the secret? And does it matter that much? Do we get consumed with who's starting here, who's going there? I had a Pac-12 coach last season who reached out to me because I was uh, I was interviewing, I think it was USC, I was talking to Clay Helton, the then USC coach, and I had another Pac-12 coach say, hey, ask him if so-and-so is healthy. And I thought to myself, does it matter that much? Do you guys think it matters that much with one guy here, one guy there, or do coaches just get consumed with state secrets? 
I, you know, I think it's just, I think they get a little consumed with it. I think it's a little overrated. Um, and I know as fans, I think we love it because we just want all the information we can get, right? Like, that's what we want to talk about. We want to make decisions. We want to have arguments. And so if Bo Nix was announced quarterback one, we know that you're going to have college that call in and say, no, Ty Thompson should be the guy or Jay Butterfield should be the guy. So I think that it's more, as a coach, I don't think it really matters, especially to these big-time programs. I don't think Georgia's shaking in their boots if they know Bo Nix is a starter or Ty Thompson is a starter. But, like, you know, I guess maybe on a, on a smaller level maybe it matters, but when you're an elite team like Georgia and Oregon, I don't think it should really matter. Georgia's like, we're still playing Oregon, right? You know, I, I do think you're right. I think, like, fans like to geek out on that stuff. And uh, fans like to get in, especially when there's no game to talk about yet. Fans like to, you know, sort of dissect who's going to start or who's going to do this. And i got to be honest with you, I have no interest in who the number three or number four defensive back is going to be. I have no interest in who is the backup left tackle and who's, you know, all the minutiae around the team. And I think most fans don't care that much. I think most fans want to hear good stories. They want to know what their team's about. They want to know... When they watch a game, they wanna they wanna know who's out on the field, and they wanna know something about Dan Lanning, or they wanna know something about Noah Sewell, or they wanna you know feel like they know uh, and can relate or connect with the players. But beyond that, I really you know who's the backup kicker? No, like I don't think normal human beings are into that stuff. Peter Sampson, am I wrong? And I get why. Hey, I get why they do it in the NBA, Major League Baseball, NFL because. Some of the they have rules that say you have to announce this player is going to be available, not available, or they questionable. They have rules, but I think a lot of it is geared toward uh, gambling and the relationships that the leagues have with gambling entities. Yeah, it's it's definitely gambling related there, and I'm with you. The vast majority of of people don't care outside of say quarterback. Or maybe if you've got some random, you know, really deep, you know, running back battle and two pretty equal guys. But beyond that, I mean, maybe one, two percent of the, of the crowd's going to be into that. I certainly know why people actually involve, you know, Georgia might be involved to a degree. They might want to know why. And, you know, maybe it's some kid that they've had tabs on and they know, oh, he struggles, you know, going to his left or something like that. But for the most part. John, we haven't had games in months, and this is just how it is as we gear up. I mean, we're, what, two days from week zero? A big chunk of this is going to go away pretty soon. Yeah, we're going to have games this weekend. Uh, you know, you've got a couple of teams that are uh, over in Dublin, Ireland, and they're going to play a football game or wherever they are. And so, it, you know, I got a text message from somebody yesterday who said, Hey, I'm in Dublin. And I was like, What? I forgot. Like, you know, we're worried about USC and uh, UCLA traveling over to play play Penn State. But, you know, we have college football games uh, being played overseas for the first time. Is you know, you're going to have, I think, North is it Northwestern and Nebraska who are going to play that game? I think that that's... Uh, yeah, it is. Northwestern yeah. versus Nebraska. Yeah, that's going to be amazing. College football is going international. so A conference game, nonetheless, too. An actual conference game that matters. They're going to throw it overseas week one. Or week zero, sorry. It's, yeah. it's insane. Do you think, you know, look, do you think this is a bad idea? That, like, to have it be a conference game? Like, can't we give them, like, Montana State against Oregon State in, in week two or three or whatever? That's kind of what I think. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the idea of it for those fans. But, like, really, if college football, big-time college football is going to Dublin, wouldn't I don't know. I don't want to assume that they would be excited about, yeah, you know, Montana State versus, you know, Colorado State or something random. But 
I mean, there's a lot of hardcore Cornhusker fans, a lot of Northwestern fans. Man, they don't get to see that game in person. That's a conference game. You know, a lot of people are disappointed. The, the thing about it is, though, is like when the NFL goes overseas, it's never going to be a highlight game, right? It's never right. going to be yeah. the Chiefs versus the Chargers or, you know, something like that. Like, that's going to be saved for Sunday night football. They're not going to send that game over. So I understand what they're doing, right? Like, the Big Ten and the SEC are the top two conferences. You know, the Big Ten is going to throw out Nebraska, who, you know, should be a middle of the pack team versus Northwestern, who isn't supposed to be very good. You know, I, and again, I don't know what the type of, you know, reaction is going to be over in Dublin, Ireland to watch this game, but I don't think they want to send out, you know, Ohio State or Michigan. So they're going to send yeah. out, you know, the weaker teams and then Nebraska, which is still kind of a brand. I, I, they're not going to send out the good teams. That, that's all it is. So I think it's, I think it's fun. It's a good little shtick they got going on. Uh, but I think as the players, like, that's got to be weird because they have never experienced anything like that. I mean, they're just 18, 19, 20-year-old kids. To be thrown in week zero over in Dublin in a place you've probably never been, I, I think that's going to be tough for them. I, here's, here's what they've done in the past. 2016, Cal played Hawaii in Australia. Cal won that game 51-31 in 2016. This game uh, was supposed to be played in 2020, this Dublin-Ireland series. So it was supposed to be Notre Dame and Navy playing uh, the, in 2020. It was called off because of the pandemic. Now, Notre Dame makes sense. That's the Irish. They were going to play in Ireland. So Notre Dame-Navy got called off because of the pandemic. And then last year it was supposed to be Nebraska-Illinois, but they moved the game to Champaign for the same reason, pandemic-related. But they are expecting attendance in Ireland to be in the mid-30,000s, including 13,000 fans who have traveled over from the United States, including Cadillac Chris Brown, who is our correspondent on this show. I should get Cadillac Chris Brown on tomorrow's show, but they're saying the economic impact of the game will be about $63 million on Ireland's economy. So they've got a bunch of people in other parts of Europe who are apparently are coming in. They've now downgraded that. I should take that back. It, they originally expected it to be $63 million. They're saying it's going to be more like $40 million. And uh, so... Here you go. Nebraska and Northwestern both went three and nine last season. So, so let's see what happens. So you said it was game. only like thirty thousand is the capacity. You said they're, they're expecting mid thirties. Yeah, they, yeah. The crazy part is, like Peter said, with Nebraska, they hold ninety thousand at their stadium. So, like, there's gonna be a lot of Nebraska fans that are gonna miss out on this game if it was supposed to be at in Lincoln, Nebraska. At Northwestern yeah. even holds over 47,000. Yeah, so. But Northwestern averages about 30,000. Yeah. That's, that's the difference. So Northwestern would be used to it. But Nebraska, I mean, I think if I'm a Nebraska fan, like, it's cool, but I'm also not happy about it. Like, if I'm living in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I'm diehard Nebraska fan, which I have met a few, oh, and yeah. they are crazy people, uh, I would yeah. not be happy to have a game out in Ireland where, you know, I either have to fly there, spend a you know, bunch of money, or I have to watch it on TV. I should. I'm going to text Cadillac Chris Brown right now and see if he will join us from Ireland. Uh, uh, I don't know what time it is. Do what time is it in Ireland? Anybody uh, know? I'll do some research. Yeah, find out. Um, and we will. Uh, we'll get him on. It could be middle of the night because he texted me last night said he was just waking up. So yeah, it looks uh, like it's uh, twelve ten a.m. So okay. Let's see if he's awake. He's probably in a bar he's all probably, liquored up somewhere. Yeah, probably just drinking. Yeah. Get him on the show. Uh, let's see if Cadillac Chris Brown wants to call into the show. Here's another thing. Here's what they're getting, the teams are getting to play this game. They're getting uh, chartered flights over to Ireland, and they're getting $250,000 bonus to spend as they like. Nebraska 
is saying it's a break-even proposition for them because the $250,000 is going to be used to make sure that the players and coaches and everybody are comfortable. So there you go. Yeah, kids, you're getting a trip to, uh, to Ireland. I would not want to play this game if I were Scott Frost. You know, he's, he's on the hot seat, right? He's got to win games. And so Scott, Scott Frost is going to be over there in Ireland dealing with some additional complications. This is a game that Nebraska probably should win if it's played in Lincoln, Nebraska, but you put it in Ireland, who knows? Yeah, they played Northwestern last year in Lincoln, won 56-7. So I think you're right. I think you would much rather have it in the States, uh, even if it was probably at Northwestern. Yeah. Because you don't know what the conditions are going to be. I, you can't, I mean, I can't imagine that the game being Ireland and Ireland holding an actual American football game, like their field is going to be maybe at a different, you know, the, the conditions might be a little different. And I think with your Nebraska and you're the more talented team, you kind of want it to be, you know, pretty normal that you're used to. Amen to that. All right, we're going to play some punch it audio coming up. Nick Dashiell covers Oregon State. He'll be joining us bottom of the hour. All of that still ahead. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. They're going to play this game in Ireland, Northwestern and uh, Nebraska. It'll count. It's a conference game. Michigan and Ohio State aren't going for that. Uh, Will's on I-5. He wants to weigh in on that. Then we're going to play some punch it audio. Go ahead, Will. Hi, my name's Will, and I have a Husker problem. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I'm one of those. Hi, Will. Hi. <laughs> I'm one of those diehard Huskers you guys were referencing. Have been my whole life, born and raised there, moved to Oregon a few years back. A um, couple of things: the weather is supposed to be great, mid 60s, slight chance of rain, perfect, perfect temperatures. It's natural turf, so we'll see how that goes. It is a must-win for Scott. Um, I think we will win, but. Um, there's a lot of questions about Husker football. New offensive coordinator, new quarterback, new receivers, new DBs, new defensive line. It's a, it's going to be a weird year, but I was almost at this game. We were this close to buying it, and then my wife had some things come up with her work. We couldn't go. I've got buddies there. They said they're having a great time, and that I'll leave you with this. The funniest thing that my buddy texted me today was a picture of a car with a big – N in the back window on white lettering. It looks just like the N on the side of our helmets. And what what that is, is they give those to student drivers. It stands for novice. So all over Dublin, ah. there are these people that are Husker fans and don't even know it. It's hilarious. So anyway, <laughs> yeah. just thought I'd let you know what's going on. Hey, let me ask you something. Let me, Will, let me ask you something, Husker fan. Uh, how hot or how warm is Scott Frost's seat in your mind? Um, it's pretty hot. Um, you know, I've been thinking about this six and six. He probably saves his job as long as he sneaks out a win. He shouldn't that being Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa. Um, if he goes six and six with the schmudge, then no, he's gone. If he goes, if he goes five and seven, he's gone. If he goes seven and five, he's probably there. But again, he's got to have a win, a win that counts, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa on Black Friday. He's got to have one of those wins. Without those, I think he's gone. Appreciate the phone call, Will. 
John, I can give you some yeah. odds on uh, some coach firings here. I just pulled them up. All right, do it. First, uh, first Big Ten coach to be fired is Scott Frost. He is the favorite. Minus 120. <laughs> the next yeah. is Tom Allen at plus 400. So he's a big-time favorite uh, to be the first fired coach in the Do you the have a Pac-12 line on that? Uh, yes, I do. Do you want to guess or you want to just give it to you? Um, what I want is I want you to read maybe the top three or four and I'll tell you where I draw the line of, you know, this, is, this isn't this is even possible. Okay. Herm, Ed, Herm Edwards is going to be the favorite. Herm Edwards is the favorite. He's yeah. plus 215. David Shaw, number two mm, at Stanford. No, no, Shaw's not getting fired. That's a bad bet. Like Stanford, look, most programs coming off last season, he'd be in trouble. Stanford fans are frustrated with David Shaw, but Stanford is not firing David Shaw. So They're her, not going to do it. Herm Edwards plus 215, David yeah. Shaw plus 250. Don't bet David Shaw, but what's who's next? Uh, Jet Fish at Arizona plus 260. Too, too soon. He'd have to you know, do what Jimmy Lake did last year. It's too soon for Fish. I wouldn't bet him either. Who else you got? Carl Durrell at plus 400. Mm, okay. I, I think Carl Durrell should be the second on the list. I agree. Uh, and I think it should be only Durrell and then Herm. Who's third? Uh, Jeff Fish was third. Uh, who, who's oh, after fit? Uh, yeah, Justin Wilcox at Cal plus no, five fifty. No, he just he just got extended. He's yeah. not getting fired. Bad bet. And who then, else? Uh, Chip Kelly at six at sixteen nope. to one. He just got extended. USCLA is not paying that buyout. Nope. And then Jonathan Jonathan Smith twenty five nope. to one. Nope. Dan Lanning, nope. fifty to one. Cal nope. Whittingham sixty six. No, no, no. Jake Dickert sixty six. Lincoln Riley nope. and Kalen DeBoer both a hundred to one. There's only two coaches that could possibly be fired. You're a sucker if you're betting on anybody but Herm Edwards or Carl Durrell. And I and I look. Here's the thing: if Herm Edwards has a bad start to the season, he could get in trouble just based on what's he's in trouble already. But his athletic director Ray Anderson is in total denial about who Herm is. But Carl Durrell is. I feel bad for Carl Durrell because he inherited the Mel Tucker mess and the departure and. He's had some trouble getting getting some traction there. We had Rick George's AD on the show. I would actually lean towards the only coach possibly being fired this year would be Herm Edwards. Because I think even with Darrell, if I if I know Rick George as well as I think I do, I think he would give him one more. Even if he had a you know a two and ten or a three and nine, he'd give him one more. And Darrell came into such a bad situation too. I think I think you're right. Like he's He's going to give him that one more year of just kind of yeah. try to turn it around. But then again, who would have had Jimmy Lake a year ago? That's true. All right, let's play some Punch It Audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Deion Sanders, Neon Dion, talking about NIL. He says NIL, name, image, likeness, is pushing the little guy away. What does he mean? Here's Dion. Punch it. When you talk about name, image, and likeness, I haven't seen anybody on anything. We keep talking about these kids are making millions of dollars. What are they on? Where is the name, the image, and the likeness, or is it just collective, just paying these kids to participate in this or that college? We don't have that. Again, we, we don't have those resources. Uh, we can't compete with that, so the little guy is pushed aside because now when it comes down to is this guy going to choose this college or that college, we can't compete with adding up 
to make sure that kid is compensated like he wants to be compensated. And I want these kids to start by focusing on the NFL and not the NIL. Mm -hmm. Now you have kids not even thinking about um, the wonderful job that Coach Saban has done and the track record that he's accumulated, but you're and or the position coach or does his scheme fit him? They're thinking about NIL. So if the money fits, uh, I go there. And that's not the way to attack this thing because the NFL is what's going to sustain you and maintain you, not the NIL. I got a solution for for the NCAA. I have it's an easy fix. I think you should require that you can't pay an NIL bonus to a player until after they have completed one year of enrollment in college. You can put money into account. You know, you can stick it into a fund that they can collect, but they cannot physically collect it until after one year in the program. I think it would deter programs from paying bonuses or NIL collectors from paying bonuses to incoming players. And I think it would focus more on retention of players who have proved it on the field. Jackson State's football coach not happy. And when Neon Dion's not happy, nobody's happy. Chet Holmgren's injury timeline. What is the timeline? Punch it. So it's named after a significant ligament in the middle of your foot. And when it's disrupted, it creates instability in the foot. And that's why you need to get it fixed. So surgical repair is what will happen. And then it's a lengthy recovery. You know, it can be four to six months to get all the way back from it. But the good news is once it's repaired and once you get reconditioned and readapt to the sport, you should be fine going forward. There should not be any lingering issues for him. We don't hear about it as much in basketball. We hear about it much more in football. Uh, just to give you an example, Travis Etienne, star running back for the Jacksonville Jaguars, missed the entire season last year because he too had an injury before the season started. But he's back and looking great in training camp and ready to go. So Chad Holmgren can take a look at the NFL and be encouraged about okay. some of the guys who've come back from this. Yeah, look, you can also look to basketball where some guys have had troubles coming back from this injury and go, look, I, I better go easy. Uh, it's an unfortunate byproduct of basketball, off-season basketball, these pro-am games. You know, we talked about a couple days ago that that gymnasium that they were playing this thing in was not the best facility. They stopped the game at halftime. Peter Sampson mentioned that earlier in the show as well. I mean, I just think there's some inherent problems when you get players who are playing essentially pick glorified pickup games in the offseason. LeBron lumbering down the court. Chet Holmgren, a rookie, not even a rookie yet, trying to stop him. It's a problem. Burke Magnus is in charge of programming for ESPN. He talked about the importance of the playoff and college football to ESPN. How important is it to ESPN? They're not going to be part of the Big Ten's media deal. Right now we have, by far and away, the biggest share of audience in college football. Like, all, over 50% of total viewership in the sales demo, 18 to 49, comes through the Disney networks. Um, we will take a dip in that number in 2023 because the SEC deal that we bought, the SEC rights that we bought, which was the CBS package, has, haven't started yet and the Big Ten will be gone after this year. So we'll take a one-year dip in our share, but actually coming out of that when the SEC rights flow in in 2024 and then Texas and Oklahoma come in 2025, our share of college football viewership will actually grow without the Big Ten. 
um, without the Big Ten would, in the way it was being offered to us, in other words, right? In the end, ESPN is not going to be part of the Big Ten. But if you look at the actual college football programming across the landscape, you're talking about greater than 50% of that content belonging to ESPN. It's a real opportunity, too, for ESPN in this Pac-12 media rights conversation. We've been talking a lot on this show in the last couple of months about who's going to be the media partner. It's likely going to be ESPN. I wrote about it today at johnconzano.com that, you know, Bob Thompson, the former Fox Sports Network's president, told me that he believes that ESPN could do something really creative by gobbling up a couple of the key Mountain West Conference entities like Boise State, San Diego State, uh, and and possibly UNLV and making it very difficult for CBS and Fox to have primetime games that are in the Pacific time zone. Also, let's be real. ESPN not getting a part of the Big Ten's contract means that ESPN is going to have more money to spend when it comes to the college football playoff equation. That's right, ESPN, a likely bidder and probably a winner to some extent when it comes to the college football playoff expansion. The plan for college football playoff expansion media rights is a little bit NFL-like. You know how the NFL playoff games, you see some on Fox, some on NBC, some on CBS, other places as well, occasionally a streamer. Well, I think they're going to divide up the media inventory when it comes to the playoff, and they're going to allow multiple bidders. ESPN is going to be well-positioned because it did not spend in this round of Big Ten media negotiations. Coming up, Nick Daschle covers Oregon State, does a great job uh, on that beat. He will be joining us to talk about the potential for Oregon State football to compete at a high level this year. What potential do they have? What are the question marks? Is it possible that Oregon State is going to be a surprise in the Pac-12 conference. Jonathan Smith said it on Media Day. It may have caught your attention. He said he expects that they will have a chance to win all 12 games. Nick Daschle is coming up. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. If this is uh, a good thing or a bad thing, but it happened. I ha- I was uh, last week on vacation, and I happened to be in Central Oregon, and I turned on uh, one afternoon a uh, Pac-12 Network production that was basically Oregon State's game against Washington last year, with no uh, no commercials, with no uh, interruptions between the plays. It was a 60-minute time commitment, and I watched that damn thing. And you know what I came away thinking? Oregon State plays hard. It's resilient. It, it, it epitomizes Jonathan Smith uh, as a team. But at some point, I'm waiting for Oregon State, and maybe it will happen this year, to start to blossom a little bit more. They blossomed last year. Do they have another step forward in them? Here to talk about it, Nick Daschle of the Oregonian. You can read him on Oregon Live. Daschle. Can they take another step forward? Does it feel like they're ready to do that? I think so. I think the what makes them 
give the possibility of taking a step forward is is the defensive side of the ball. I mean, they haven't been. I mean, we we all know how bad this defense was when Jonathan took over the program in 2018, and it slowly gotten better. And then with Trent Bray taking over this year, they seem to have you know a little bit more, even even a little bit more energy and 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 playmaking. And, and then you throw in all the veterans they got on that side of the ball. I mean, there's a possibility the defense might be the best side of the ball for this team this year. And if that's the case, then, yeah, any record you want to throw out there outside of maybe 11 or 12 and 11-1, 12-0 and is, is possible if, if the defense is really as good as it's looked in camp. Because I think, I think the offense will be fine. Bigger, faster. I heard that report from somebody who watched practice uh, in the last two days. Bigger, faster, are you seeing that? Um, you know, bigger, I, I don't know, faster. Yes. I just think what it is, is I don't know. They have a lot of, you know, sure. Certain NFL guys on the defensive side, you know, Rajon Wright obviously is, is a guy and there's probably a couple of the guys that, that will we'll get a shot. But what they do have is they have a lot of good college football players that have played a lot of football. And you, you, you get that combination in, in college. I just think, you know, and, and if they know what they're doing and they seem to know what they're doing, I, I think it's going to make for, again, I, I'm, I'm weary to step out and say this is going to be a great defense because sure enough, Boise will put 40 on them. But I, I, it just looks like one that's, that's going to be one of the better defenses we've seen at Oregon State, you know, in the past 10, 12 years. This is interesting. Is Do you feel like, because we saw, I think, you know, in the last couple of years, Tim Tibisar struggle, Trent Bray, is it all Bray? Is it some Bray? Is it personnel? What do you think? Well, Tim's defense was more react to react to things, and, and Bray is going to take the game. It's going to take the game to the to the offense. Yeah, they're going to attack, and they're going to do it unpredictably. They're going to they're gonna they're gonna send guys from different angles that that maybe opponents haven't seen from Oregon State in recent years, and they've got some guys capable of doing it. They're outside linebacker, outside linebackers, you know, at least through the top four. They can get to the quarterback. The defensive line, it's not the best in Pac-12. It's probably not even close to the best in Pac-12, but it's 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 good. It's good enough. And that, and for Oregon State, that's that that's that's a step forward because it hasn't been good enough. Say maybe the first three years of Smith, you got linebackers, the inside linebackers know what they're doing. They're making they're, they're making plays, and that secondary that secondary might be the best in the Pac-12 this year. It, mm. it, it just might be with all the guys. They got two two corners that could play in the NFL. They've got three or four safeties. If if Alton Julian is able to come back, he was he was a big time player last year before he got hurt. Um, you know, they've got so much experience there. I, yeah, I mean, it's just, and, and, and Bray just, he, he just, he just kind of is, is the, is the, I guess, for lack of a better term, the kind of the secret sauce, this whole thing. Cause I think he's been sitting here for three, four, five, six years, you know, wondering, you know, when I get my turn, this is what I'm going to do. And, yeah, they just look like they, they're, they're going to be aggressive and, you know, we'll, we'll see how that translates these first couple games because they're not going to be easy, but but I think I think they're going to have a pretty good defense. Nick Daschle covers Oregon State like none other.
Chance Nolan at quarterback. Uh, feels like he's the likely starter in week one, and yet we saw Jonathan Smith name Tristan Jebbia as a team captain. Is that Jonathan just rewarding the good soldier and, hey, he may be a team captain but not necessarily the starter, or what's going on there? Well, Jonathan's not naming the captains. That's a vote of the team. And you know, Tristan's a he's a likable guy, and he's he's you know he's been a good he's been a good team player all along. I I mean I was a, I guess I was a little surprised because I mean I'll, I I don't think he's going to be first or second. I could I I could be wrong, but I don't think he's going to be first or second team. Um, but yeah, Chance is going to be. I'll just I'll be I'll be shocked if Chance isn't the quarterback, but. But I know they like Gulbertson, so I think they 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 like what they got in their first two guys. And Jebby has proven he could he can play at the Pac-12 level. He just maybe isn't quite the playmaker those two are. So they're they're fine at quarterback, I think. What what is it that Nolan is doing now that maybe he couldn't do a year ago? And uh, and, and by the way, I was watching that Washington game on replay. He had a really bad turnover in that game in Oregon State territory. And it was that kind of play where I was like, gosh, that's got to kill Jonathan. There were just some moments where Chance made some bad decisions last year. He took too many chances, so to speak. Oh, that was, yeah, that was his worst game of the season. But yeah, are you talking about the one down by the goal line yep. where, he's trying to, where he's trying to scramble to the sideline? He yep. puts the ball, kind of, the ball kind of comes out of his hand when he scrapes it on the ground. And yeah, I, yeah, Jonathan was about, he about came out of his skin on that one. But um, yeah, no, that was one of his. I think Chance is just a little bit better at everything, and the thing he had to get better at was was hitting the hitting the me, intermediate to deep balls with some more accuracy. I mean, they're not expecting 100 percent on those, but he's got to start hitting some of those. And in practice, at least, he was he, he was he was better. I'm not saying he's he's gonna he's gonna light it up for 450 you know, in a given game, but he's um, he's better in that regard. I think he just has a better command of the offense. He, he's, I think he's a little more confident, you know, running the ball when when it needs to. I think at times, you know, he kind of he kind of even pulled that back a little bit because he didn't want to be known as the guy just to scramble at the first, you know, at the first hint of trouble. And I think he he's a little bit more confident in what he can do with his legs. So I just think he's a little bit better at everything, and and that that alone should make him one, you know, probably. Among the probably among the top five or six quarterbacks in the Pac-12, he's not going to be. I wouldn't say he's you know one of the top two or three, but but he's definitely going to be. He's definitely going to be you know middle middle to upper middle. Oregon State's got good running backs, good running game. Uh, I love their offensive line play with Jim Mahalchek, the coach there. Tight end Luke Musgraves is you know he's got he's a guy who's going to play in the NFL. Um, wide receiver though is a question. Do they Anthony Gold? Do they have somebody that can hurt a defense if it cheats up and starts to take away those you know eight to fifteen yard intermediate routes? Yeah, I kind of grilled Brian Lingren a little bit about that the other day. Just you know, I wanted to know you know who 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 do you have that's going to get deep, and um, he he thinks overall they've got better speed than they've ever had at receiver in the five years he's been there. Um, and Gould is one of those guys, but I think Treshawn Harrison's sneaky, sneaky fast, and he's and he's definitely a good receiver. So I think he's a guy they're they're hoping is gonna is gonna get downfield. And occasionally, Tyjon Lindsey will will be able to will be able to hurt him hurt teams deep too. Now it's gonna be up to Nolan to hit him, but those those three, 
I know they've always thought Irish was going to be that guy that was going to you know, take the top off of defense, and he hasn't really proven it yet. But I, I think he's starting to come around a little bit and, and sort of come into his own. So he might be a guy that steps up in that in that role too. But they're going to go seven deep there, and I'm I'm curious to see how they how they deploy those seven guys. I thought at times they played they they played a little bit they 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 had. They were a little bit too fair with everybody, and so everybody played last year at times. So I thought, you know, how about getting some guys into some rhythm? Maybe, you know, maybe dial it down to four or five guys at times just to see if guys could get into a rhythm. And I'm not saying that they're going to do that, but I've asked that that question. I, I got the impression that's not off the table. That you know, there there may be some games where they, you know, they 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 maybe only go with three or four guys, and and you know, see if they can get into a into a rhythm. Nick Daschle, you can read him on Oregon Live, follow him on Twitter. He covers Oregon State like none other. Give me an idea of Jonathan Smith's evolution. I've been around him some. We're going to have him on this show on a weekly basis during the season. We watched him grow last year. How has he changed with his practices, procedures, sort of his temperament, uh, dealing with the media? Uh, Who is he now, and how is it different than maybe a year or two ago? Well, he, he's he's a little more open with 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 the media. He was he was pretty guarded his first couple of years. I'm not saying he didn't say anything, but you know he was always he was leery about what he might say and how that might you know be perceived. I think he's a little more open now than than he used to be. It just comes with being a head coach five years. You're just a little bit more comfortable with what with what you're able to do. I'm sure you've probably noticed that too. And talking to him, you know, weekly over the years, he's just, he's willing to give a little bit more. Um, but he's also, he's also become, on the other hand, he's also become more of a college football coach these days. And that he's, he's a little more paranoid. And they're, I mean, they're starting to close down practices more and more earlier in camp and, you know, and don't want to, you know, they got, you know, they got security guards outside. They started having security guards outside the, the uh, practice field last year and things like that. So, you know, he's a, I think he just, he, he, he and, and he's a little bit more comfortable about taking chances in games. I don't, I don't know he took a lot of chances, you know, early on, but the last couple of years he's taken chances and I can't, I can't see him back off this year. I think, I think, you know, he, I, when he thinks there's a chance to, when they have a chance to put their foot on somebody or, or, you know, if they're maybe overmatched a little bit in a game, I think he'll take chances in both those situations. Dashiell, you know, we've watched this team have an identity as, you know, plays hard, it's resilient, it runs the football. It's not, I, I feel like it does a disservice to the talent of the kids when you say they play hard or they, or they're resilient, you know, this is a talented team. How much more talent do they have right now than two years ago in your mind? You mean the old lunch bucket you? Or yeah. it used to be known as. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's a little I mean it's I guess I guess it's sort of a backhand, you know, backhand compliment to a to a program when all you talk about is how hard they play. But but yeah, sure the talent I mean they're they're you know, first of all, first they were able when John first started, I mean they were lucky to get your your middle of the road three star recruits and then they started bringing in transfers who who are former four star guys at other places 
And it's just little by little they've been able to upgrade the talent, you know, little by little. And, I mean, I think this recruiting class they got, if they can hang on to it, it's, it's going to be by far the best class that, that Jonathan signed. And, and, I, and I'd have to go back for sure. But I think this last year they, they didn't really go too deeply into the transfer portal this last year because I think they liked the talent they got on the team. And, I mean, it's just the, you can tell the speed. It's, it's, it's a faster team. It's a more physical team. It's a little bit bigger team. It's just, you know, all, all in all, it's just, you know, more athletic. And every just little by little, they're getting better. You know, the one area that they'll always have issues with is getting a big defensive tackle. I mean, that, and that's whatever everybody wants, those guys. And they're just I, I don't know if that's ever going to happen, or, or very rarely will they be able to get a guy like that. But that's other than that, all the other positions, it's, they, they, they've significantly upgraded. I mean, the, the, the safety or the, the defensive back position, it's it's gone up significantly over over, over Smith's tenure. The the talent back there, it's it's night and day over the five years. Opener against Boise State, then Fresno State. Two tough games to start. I could see uh, Oregon State going two and zero. I could see him going zero and two. How are you feeling? Yeah, it's, I mean, you look at those first five games and I mean, it, it's anywhere between probably four and one and one and four. I mean, it, and you, they, they could play, they could play well and be one and four because USC, Utah, Boise State, Fresno State, I mean, they're all teams that are sniffing around the top 25 if they're not in the top 25 and, you know, playing at Fresno State, shoot, that's, that's probably the toughest road game they're going to have all year. I mean, I I don't know many people are actually picking Oregon State to win that game. I'm not saying they won't, but but uh, but that's going to be a very difficult game. So, I mean, anything's possible. I, I I think, you know, you're never going to get Jonathan or anybody to say this, but I but I think if they can come out of those first two games with a split, that 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 will feel that will feel good. You, know, you I just you don't want to come out of those first two games zero and two, and then I've I've been saying for a while, you know, the next step for this program, if you want to be a good program, you got to win your opener at some point. I mean, it's been 2015 since you won an opener. I mean, go win an opener. That, that'd be a, that'd be a good starting point to, to show that you that you've taken another step. So, I, I, I think that 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 would be a good you know good place to start with this team is win that opener. Is there is there angst in Corvallis about the future of the conference? I mean, I guess there's hand wringing going on everywhere, but Washington State and Oregon State are in a particularly precarious position in that if this conference two years from now, four years from now, splinters, they don't have a easy path to get to the you know where the halves are. Is that causing any extra anxiety in that footprint, or is it? kind of out of the control of everybody and so you don't worry about it. You know, yeah, that it's it's I mean you could tell there's maybe a little bit of anxiety but boy, I mean getting Scott Barnes to talk about anything other than he he is so on message with with what what Oregon State's future is, you know, it's all about staying together. We're going to stay together. I mean, you can't get him to go anywhere off script on that. So, it's hard to tell what he's thinking and you know, I think Jonathan is at this point. It's one of the things out of his control, and that's the coaches are. You know, this stuff's sort of out of their control, and 
and they can worry about it, but it doesn't really do them any good. So I think they just they gotta they gotta let things play out. I think at this point they don't really have a ton of leverage. I I, I don't think, or maybe maybe you think differently, but I mean, just the leverage is just not there. They just have to be supportive and and hope this the conference stays together. I will be in Atlanta for Georgia, Oregon in week one, but I will see you in Fresno week two, Dash. It'll be good to see you in the press box. Thanks for joining us. Sure, we'll see you. There he is, Nick Dashel of the Oregonian, covers Oregon State, does a great job at it as well. I'll talk about the future of the Pac-12 conference in the next segment. Are you anxious? Some of the Pac-12 teams are. I had one athletic director tell me if one more school leaves – it's run for the hills. But I don't think another school is leaving, not in the short term. I'll tell you why next. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. What's going to happen to the Pac-12 conference? Some gloom and doom out there. The gloom bots. The doom droids. That's what I'm calling you. If you are a gloom and doomer out there who's predicting the demise of the Pac-12 conference. I'm going to say something here and, you know, I want you to remember it when it comes true. Do I think the Pac-12 conference is going to exist in its present form forever? No, I would bet against that. I think the Pac-12 is likely to expand Probably will add some teams. It may lose some teams at some point. College football looks dramatically different right now than it did a decade ago, two decades ago. Look at what happened to the bowl season. What I do think is going to happen, though, in the short term, and I want to focus on the short term for a second because I think it's important. Like, you know, we talk about, you know, the two days you can't control yesterday. You can't control yesterday. Tomorrow, you can't really control tomorrow. All you can control is today. And so I think that's where the Pac-12 is living right now is in the space that it can control. It cannot probably bring UCLA and USC back into the conference. But what can it do now? And so right now I think ESPN, I think it was really interesting yesterday, and I wrote about this, and you want to read it in much more depth and see the data, you know, go to johnconzano.com and get a free subscription or get a paid subscription, whatever works for you, and look at the data. So I asked Bob Thompson, the former Fox Sports Network's president, to do something for me about three weeks ago. I asked him to do some crunching of numbers. I was really kind of focused on what it would take to, you know, hold the members together and would uneven revenue sharing be something that the Pac-12 would investigate. And so I gave Bob Thompson a task. I said, Crunch some numbers and create a formula for me because he's been involved in all these media rights negotiations as an executive at Fox. I said, crunch some numbers for me and tell me what Washington, Oregon, Stanford, Oregon State, Washington State, you know, tell me what everybody's worth and tell me what you think the Pac-12 is going to get from ESPN if it stays in its present form with 10 teams. And Thompson did that and he got back to me within a few days. This was weeks ago. I didn't publish it at the time because he and I talked and he said, gosh, you know, there was so much going on. There was so much turmoil. There was all this stuff out there, the, the doom bots and the, 
the gloom droids were out and they were going, you know, oh, this conference is doomed, it's going to splinter, whatever. They've been saying that for weeks. And he said, you know, are we, are we opening up ourselves for criticism if something happens like in the next 24 hours? So we kind of sat on it. And then today, 538, and Nate Silver does this great job at 538, that website, he came out with like, the Big Ten and probably how they view all of the college football landscape. And so Thompson and I got to talking and said, maybe now it's time, time to publish this. So what we did is Thompson looked at what he thinks ESPN and others will give the remaining Pac-12 teams. And then he went market by market, and he judged the programs on brand, television market, fan support, men's basketball, Olympic sports. He has a huge formula, and I can get into it, and I'll geek out on it in the next hour. But what we published I think is pretty interesting, and I think it's going to be the Rosetta Stone for what's going to happen in the Pac-12. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. I'll get to the five at five. I just want to finish my thoughts. I published Geeking Out on the Media Value of the Pac-12 Schools at johnconzano.com earlier this morning. And I asked Fox Sports Network's president, former president, Bob Thompson, to give me some valuations of the remaining 10 members he believes that the average annual payout of the Pac-12's media rights package that is currently being negotiated is going to end up around 350 million dollars a year over the uh, like a five-year deal 350 million per year so about $35 million per university over the length of the deal. He thinks year one will be closer to $32.4 million per university, escalating to $35 million, $350 million, excuse me, total package. But he, he assigned a point value to all the teams that is based on the factors that I pointed out before the break. Olympic sports, win percentage, football brand, television households in your market, fan support, men's basketball, all that stuff. It's a whole bunch of complicated things that he put together. And he gave me the formula, but I thought it was too complicated to present uh, and put out there because I think it just muddies the waters. What people want to know is, hey, who's at the top of the heap? And Bob Thompson thinks Washington is at the top of the heap. They have a bigger TV market, about 2.8 million households in the uh, in their primary market, plus adjacent uh, DMAs. And so Oregon has only about $1.8 million. So he put Washington first, he put Oregon second, he put Stanford third. Then he went Arizona State, Utah, Cal, Arizona, Washington State, Colorado, and Oregon State in that bottom tier. Now the bottom four, Arizona, Washington State, Colorado, and, and Oregon State, he ranked them in the same neighborhood, so to speak. But... I feel like, you know, the era of subsidization may be coming to an end in college football, where the haves just go, hey, this is what we're worth. Pay us what we're worth. It's kind of what the Big Ten did with UCLA and USC. Now, given that Thompson is estimating that the Pac-12 payouts in the first year are going to be about $32 million, 
Can any of us really blame USC or UCLA for, for jumping at $72 million? It's $40 million more per year. Every athletic director in the Pac-12 would have made the move. But what if the Pac-12 conference decides to go with unequal revenue sharing? I asked Thompson that. I said, give me a scale of what you think the Pac-12 would pay Oregon State and Colorado versus Washington and Oregon. And he presented that in the piece. And I, I'm not sure if they're going to end up there because I think it causes all kinds of problems when you do unequal revenue sharing. But I thought it was a really interesting graphic in the piece. Because if you're the Pac-12, you're trying to keep Washington and Oregon happy. You can do that by sprinkling some extra money on them. You can do it two ways. One, you can say, hey, if you make the playoff it, or you make the NCAA tournament or you make a bowl game, guess what? Instead of splitting that 12 ways, you get to keep it. Or you get to keep 50% of it. Or you get to keep 25% of it. Whatever that may be. Those payouts for the playoff are going to be like $100 million by the time that TV deal gets negotiated. So keep an eye on that as one way to keep Washington, Oregon, Stanford engaged. One way that might incentivize them for the short term, the today I'm talking about, to be happy staying in a conference that very much wants them. Right now, the SEC, the Big Ten, the ACC, nobody is beating down Washington and Oregon's door to say, hey, come join us. Like, Duck fans, you want your team in the Big Ten? Of course you would, just like USC and UCLA wanted to be in the Big Ten and, and cash that check. But right now, there's not an invitation there. So Thompson presented uh, you know, the, the unequal revenue sharing in the media rights world. I think that's a second way that the conference could potentially – incentivize Washington, Oregon to be happy for now. Now, can it get them to $72 million? Probably not. But can it say, hey, instead of $32 million, you're going to collect $40 million? It could do that. But what would have to happen in that scenario is Arizona, Washington State, Colorado, Oregon State, they're going to have to take less. They're going to have to be just happy to be in the Pac-12. And it's going to require those fan bases and those athletic departments to get more creative about how they level the playing field. I, I talked to George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, before any of this broke, before any of the defection of USC-UCLA. I did an interview with him. We had a long phone conversation, and we talked about what, and this was back in like early June, just before Father's Day. And I remember it because I asked him about his dad. And... He said to me, we have to decide in college athletics if we're going to continue to have a subsidization model. It, it's ringing in my ears right now because what we are watching is the halves of college football are going, look, we can print money. We can make more money. We are separating from the have-nots. I wonder within the Pac-12 conference if the way to keep this conference happy and together in the short term is really to embrace that model. And to tell Oregon State, Washington State, Colorado, and Arizona in particular, look, you're going to have to take less. You're going to have to take less. And, hey, Boise State, UNLV, San Diego State, you can come into the conference, but get what? guess what? You're not going to get a full share immediately. So now I'm wondering if what you could do if you're the Pac-12 is take on two new teams, four new teams, six new teams, Add value in the short term. Tell those entities you're getting a one-third share. Instead of 
you know, $35 million, you're going to get $17 million, $20 million. And use that extra money that is raised as sort of uh, in that equity uh, picture when you, when you bring in San Diego State, when you bring in UNLV, when you bring in Boise State, like fans are going to go, oh, those teams, those are Mountain West teams. That doesn't add anything. ESPN thinks they add something. ESPN needs those specific time windows. And so I'm kind of wondering if the solution for the Pac-12 conference right now is to raise some extra money and extra value by inviting in four teams or six teams and then going to those four and six teams. Look, you don't get full shares. You're going to get a partial share. And we're going to use that extra money to keep Washington and Oregon and Utah and Arizona State and you know the, the, the halves of your conference happier. Keep an eye on it. Because I think it's a real possibility. And the, you know, the, the doom droids and the gloom bots that are out there saying this conference is doomed, look, I get it. It's, it's a fun thing to say. Um, you know, if I were betting the long-term arc or the trajectory of this conference, are they, is it going to look like these 10 teams are galvanized a decade from now? Probably not. Like, there's, there's a good chance that college football, especially when the ACC in 2036 has a chance to to you know, disband and go in different directions, there's a chance that college football will look more like the NFL with an NFC and an AFC division. But I think there's room for additional teams. I don't think it's limited to you know the 16 or 20 that everybody's talking about in each conference. I think you have the ability in Power 5 conference football with 65 teams to include a, the majority of those teams in the landscape. They should be in that landscape. It should not be limited to... 36 teams or 40 teams. I just don't think that's sort of capturing the spirit of college athletics, the geographic footprint of college athletics. And I frankly don't think that, you know, like everybody in the Big 12 is, you know, looking over at the Pac-12, I think hoping, wishing, and praying that it disintegrates because then it would be a good omen for the Big 12 conference. But, like, what's good for the ecosystem, frankly, is for – the Pac-12 and the Big 12 both to survive this and come through this in a way that uh, challenges the SEC and the Big 10. And I think ESPN has an opportunity here to be that player. And I want to play a clip here because, you know, Bert, Bert Mangus, the, the uh, chief programmer for ESPN, he's the president of programming, you know, he talked about the Pac-12 yesterday in this podcast that he did uh, with a couple of sports business reporters who are fantastic reporters he talked about the Pac-12 adding teams, and he didn't talk about it as if it were speculation. He talked about it as if it were a foregone conclusion. He's, and it's very unusual to hear an executive that is one of the principal parties of a negotiation break from that confidentiality and go public and talk about it. But I think Burke Mangus of ESPN was trying to signal to us that the Pac-12 is going to be okay, and the Big 12 is going to be okay. And he needs that narrative out there because it's in ESPN's interest for those conferences right now to hold together. I want you to listen to this clip, and you tell me. This is a guy on the inside of the negotiations. Does he sound like a guy who's worried that the Pac-12 is about to splinter? Or does he sound like an executive that knows the Pac-12 is going to be okay? And, in fact, it's going to add some teams in this cycle. I think the Big 12, you know, in a way, having already brought in you know, the four schools to replace Texas and Oklahoma, you know, is a little bit more or a little bit further ahead in terms of the membership, you know, uh, construct of it all. 
Um, I don't think anybody believes the Pac-12 will stay at 10 necessarily, but we don't need to know anything beyond these are the 10, these are the rights, here's a value, and then you know there'll be a mechanism to account for for any new members if 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 that is to happen. There it is. There it is. Does he sound gloomy and doomy? Nah, I think he's a guy that knows that. And look, I don't, I don't for, I'm not gonna buy like the full narrative that Fox and ESPN, CBS and NBC are are running everything. Certainly, they're influential. But I think ESPN would love nothing more than to own the entire primetime window of the Pacific Time Zone, and it's really easy to see how that happens. They become the media rights entity that gobbles up all of the Pac-12, the remaining Pac-12. Then they go out and they grab San Diego State, they grab UNLV, they grab Boise State, maybe they grab Fresno State. Maybe they don't stop there. Maybe they look for some other properties. But what that does is it leaves ESPN with all of the primetime windows. You know, it, it, it leaves them in a really interesting and powerful position when it comes to that Pacific time zone. The Big Ten can try to combat it by playing USC and UCLA, telling them, hey, we want you to kick off at 7 o'clock or 7.30 all the time. But I, I doubt Ohio State, Michigan, Wisconsin, are, they're going to want to do that on a regular basis. So keep an eye on that. I feel like, like I understand why people are wringing their hands. I get it. I understand why the Big 12 fan base is nervous. I understand that too. Like they have been through losing Texas and Oklahoma, and their fear is, oh gosh, here we go again. I get it. They want it to happen to somebody else. But if you're a Pac-12 fan, my feeling is right now that this conference is going to pull together, that ESPN is going to come in as the primary media entity, and that in the short term, the today of the Pac-12, that it's going to be all right. I think the question then becomes what happens five years from now as the Fox deal with uh, you know, the Big Ten Conference starts to tick down. It's a seven-year deal. Four years from now, five years from now, does it still make sense for those entities to be in the Pac-12 Conference? But I think that's where the conversation will be at the end of this cycle. All right, uh, coming up, I will give you after the break the uh, a little bit late five at five, but I, I got on my media rights you know tangent, and I think people care about it. I can tell you care about it because I can see how many people are reading me you know, the 70 or 100,000 people that are reading the columns that I'm writing at johnconzano.com, I can see how interested people are in reading it. Like, you know, it, it used to be, I'll just put this out there, like nobody wants these numbers out there. You know, a typical column that I was writing back in the day about the ducks and the beavers at the old newspaper, I, you know, 25,000 people, 30,000 people were reading me. I've got 70 or 100,000 people right now reading the stuff that I'm posting at johnconzano.com. And so on a daily basis, so I, I know there's interest there. It's, you know, I want to talk about the games. I want to talk about the coaches. I want to talk about the players. But as long as you are interested in it, I will talk and I will find out everything I can possibly find out about this conference, the athletic directors, the coaches, the players, the presidents and chancellors, the media negotiations going on, and I'll, and I'll be the conduit that brings it to you. All right, next we do the 5 at 5. <laughs> To the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750, the game. 
I just shared some of the numbers, the metrics with Stephen that I'm seeing with people reading uh, johnconzano.com and reading about what is going on with the Pac-12 conference and whatnot. I mean, Stephen, you tell them. Tell the people. Yeah, uh, you weren't lying about the numbers that uh, you're talking about. It's it's what the people want to read. It's what they're interested in right now, which it, it's crazy. I think it might be, John, do you think it's because it kind of came so out of left field, right? Like it wasn't really – we weren't expecting USC and UCLA to leave to the Big Ten, and so it, when it was announced – it was so unexpected that we are all just so interested in it. I think that's part of it. Yeah, and I think too, there's interest. I think there's interest in this from a variety of of angles. Like all twelve fan bases in the Pac-12 are in, into this. It's not like it only affects one or two, right? Like everybody's got a dog in the fight. So I think it appeals has wide appeal, and then I think it preys a little bit on the fear of being left out. That FOMO. Oregon fans don't want to be left out of the of the Big Ten. Washington fans don't want to be left out. Oregon State fans are nervous about, you know, ending up in the Mountain West Conference. They don't want to be left out. Like, everybody has a little bit of FOMO going on. Yeah, I think it's a great point. You know, it, like, we've talked about change and how people are so scared of change. And when it's so unknown and they're just going to change that's going to be happening, I think you're right. I think people will just want to find out the answers. And you've been putting out good information. And, you know, like I've said before on the show, most of the national things that are put out there is, well, the Pac-12 is dead. It's going to go away. And you and Wilner are kind of saying, you know what, let's let's hold back on that a little bit. Let's push back because it doesn't seem like that from who I'm talking to. So I think it's really interesting to read the two contrasting styles between yes. you guys and the national people because as a Pac-12 guy, I want to believe you. But in the back of my mind, I keep reading these national people like, well, I don't know who's telling the truth. I don't know. Yeah, and I think everybody's got – you got to be careful when you're reporting this stuff. We all know – you know, people have agendas. And so I think I don't blame the national guys. Like I had the other day, we had Brett McMurphy on the show. I have great respect for Brett McMurphy. I have great respect for Dennis Dodd. Those are the two primary reporters that are saying, hey, you know, the Big Ten is coming and praying and here they come. And But I think they're talking to people at the Big 12 and I think they're talking to people at the Big Ten who want it all to be true. But I have circled back to people who very early on told me, the Big Ten is, you know, just doesn't pencil out to take Oregon or just doesn't pencil out to take Washington right now. And I said yesterday, I reached back out to one of the one of the key people who told me that in the Big Ten conference, and I said, is anything changed? And they said, no, nothing's changed. Notre Dame's not coming right now. And I, so what I think is going to happen is I eventually think it will look much different. I do think we're going to end up like I, – I think both things can be true. Like I think the, the national reporters that are saying – yeah, Oregon and Washington and Stanford and Cal to the Big Ten. They might end up being right, but I don't think it's going to be six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, maybe four, five, six, seven years from now, maybe. And and I think the calculus will change in that time too because the playoff renegotiation is going to come in and suddenly access to the playoffs is going to be a factor and maybe that is the motivating factor for some teams to you know line themselves up, and I think the ACC when in 2036 when that deals up, you're going to see Clemson, you're going to see Miami, uh, and others you know shift. I asked Mario Cristobal on Sunday. I said, "How do you? How are you feeling?" And he says, "We're happy. We're happy where we are. Like we're well positioned. If things change, they they feel like they'll end up uh, on the right side of the halves. If things don't change in the interim, they they can't control it. So I think." There are some people out there in the Big 12 that would love to see the Pac-12 implode. 
because it would mean, hey, it's not them. And so I think they're whispering to the national guys, oh, oh no, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And then I think the Big Ten and Kevin Warren, I think they've done a real disservice to the ecosystem in college football by posturing as though we're not done, we're not finished. Uh, they've left that out there. I I think that's really unfair to the ecosystem. Like, I think, you know, Kevin Warren, I think he's done well, I think, for the Big Ten, but I don't think he's done well for the sport by continuing the narrative like, hey, we're not done, because that is that has been really disruptive, I think, to the Big 12 and to the Pac-12 both. And, you know, HBO Real Sports, he did his whole thing. I think it was a lot about how great Kevin Warren is, and he's taken a victory lap. And maybe that's what executives do, but I think if he cares about the sport itself, he has to recognize that what he is doing right now in by leaving the door open and saying we're not done is he is causing problems for the Pac-12 and he's causing problems for the Big 12. I think a lot of it to do with like what you're saying it's it's the impending doom, right? Like it's the fear of the Pac-12 is going to end and so you look at the smaller schools you know, like Oregon State, Washington State and they are just so interested because they don't want to lose the Pac-12, right? And I think he's Kevin Warren is kind of playing into that and keeping this afloat of saying, you know, we're not done. We're going to add the biggest, the best teams and then you got the smaller schools that are just in fear that it's going to just blow up in their face and they're going to have to either be, you know, in a lesser conference or just out altogether if it goes to basically two power conferences. So I think he's kind of playing into the fear of fans. Yeah, I think you're right. And I I think in the end, when the Pac-12, and this is my prediction, I'm willing to, I'm willing to, you know, I'm saying this every day, I'm writing it. I think the Pac-12 is going to pull together in this cycle. I don't think Utah, Arizona, Arizona State, and Colorado are leaving for the Big 12. I don't think Stanford, Oregon, Washington, Cal are going to the Big 10 right now. But I reserve the right in, let's say, three years to revisit that position. So I think in the short term, George Klyovkov and the Pac-12 are going to get a chance to pull this together. And I think if ESPN wants to be a part of it, it makes it easy to glue it together. Let's play some – the. Uh, I was going to say punch it audio. Let's do the 5 at 5 at 526. The 5 at 5. Right on time. Let's talk about Chet Holmgren. He's got a foot injury. It is a ligament tendon injury in his foot. It is not a broken bone, but he's a big guy. Steven said it earlier in the show, when it's a big guy – and you have a foot problem, see Bill Walton, others, you have to be concerned. Oklahoma City GM Sam Presti spinning it as positive as he possibly can today by saying, look, uh, you know, it's unfortunate, we're disappointed, but, you know, Chet's going to be all right. He's a young guy. We're focused now on his rehab and getting him back on a court. I hope he gets better. I also hope NBA players that participate in these Pro-Am events do it with a little more caution. Peter Sampson astutely pointed out earlier in the show, this was a bad venue in Seattle. Jamal Crawford's got to feel terrible for putting it together. LeBron played in this thing, lumbering down the court. Young Chet Holmgren got in the way. Big injury. He will miss the season with a foot injury. That's number one. Second in our 5 at 5, Nick Saban is 70, or he will be 70. And he will turn 71 in October. Excuse me. He's won six national championships. He says he's committed, and he plans on coaching the Crimson Tide as long as they'll have him. He's going to go Bear Bryant on us. He's seen a lot of things 
He was asked if he would still be here at the end of his contract. He said, still alive? Well, then I'll be coaching. Nick Saban planning to coach well into his 70s. He's fresh off a $93.6 million contract extension. It runs through 2030. That would put Saban at what, guys? Uh, 78, 79 at the end of this deal? Yeah, that sounds about right. Do you think he could still get it done? It's like 77-year-old Nick Saban. Has he still got it? I mean, I could see him on the sidelines. He's kind of going to pull like a Bobby Bowden or Joe Paterno where he's there as the face, but he's not really doing much. Man, 77. I kind of wonder, do you guys think that's healthy? If I can divert a little bit after our five, five, do you think it's healthy? Is that a healthy human being that is going to hang on and coach that long? I mean, maybe, you know, he seems to be doing fine. He's still sharp. I'm not a Nick Saban guy, but you know how it is. You hear about dudes in retirement. What do I do? Imagine living that kind of lifestyle, and all of a sudden you're supposed to just, what, watch soap operas and go fishing? I, I can see it, man. I don't know. I've talked to a lot of retirees who tell me it's the greatest thing ever, but they're more family-focused, and I wonder about the life-work balance of Nick Saban's life. Like, great football coach undeniable what he's done but if you want to coach into your 70s i gotta wonder okay i'll just say this it's not even nick saban i anybody who's working into their 70s i gotta wonder you know don't you have something to go to is that a fair question or am i being mean no i think you're right on i mean if you if you really need something to do when you're 79 years old especially a college football coach that you're putting in 20 hours a day like that I don't think you got much else besides going on in your life that you really like. I've told people if you if you find me at like age seventy, hosting a radio show, writing a column, uh, something has gone wrong. I won't be that guy. You won't find me at the stadium. I'll be watching the game. I'll be at the stadium, but I'll be in a I'll be in a seat eating a hot dog, drinking a beer next to Peter Sampson and Steven. Moving on, kickboxer. Yara Tade. Have you heard about this kickboxer? He was training and died while training. He was in the ring during a match. He was taken away, suffered a knock to the head. Doctors performed surgery. I'm not much into kickboxing, but Yara Tade died at a government hospital in the southern Indian city of Chennai today. Collapsed in the ring. He was a kickboxing legend and champion. And uh, doctors were not able to save him. That's the three, the number three item on my five at five. It's a terrible byproduct of a sport that is obviously violent, but nobody wants to see that happen. That is number three in our five at five. Moving on, kind of five. It's not really five. Uh, moving on, the Rams and the Bengals. This is my number four. Big brawl into the joint practice between the Bengals and the Rams today. Inter-squad practice. You could title this one, well, what did you expect to happen? These teams played in the Super Bowl. The NFL has had a long-held stance that the individual teams and not the league are responsible for imposing discipline for conduct of players during practices, including joint practices. So it's unlikely that there's going to be any league punishment. But Aaron Donald was wielding two Bengals helmets and swinging them like he was a warrior in Game of Thrones. The video is circulating on Twitter. Shows Donald swinging a helmet during during the scrum. I wouldn't mess with that guy, even if he's, you know, bare-fisted. But if you got guys with helmets, some have helmets on and some don't, 
You don't know what can happen there. It's dangerous. They called the practice. Some are saying that Aaron Donald should be disciplined. Others saying no. Big debate. Aaron Donald and the Rams. Peter, you're saying Aaron Donald should be given the game ball <laughs> from practice. But I just think it's unfortunate. And it, you can file it away as like, what in the world is happening? Well, what did you expect to happen? Finally, Nikola Jokic and Giannis Antetokounmpo are are in a clash of back-to-back MVPs in the World Cup qualifying games. They're in Belgrade right now. Uh, Serbia knocked off Greece 100-94 in overtime, despite Giannis scoring 40. That's the most in any World Cup European qualifying game in history. But Jokic got the last laugh. He had 29 points, 8 rebounds, 6 assists. The reigning MVP wowed the home crowd in the fourth quarter. He had a one-legged turnaround jumper at the three-point line with Giannis all over him. Serbia went on to win. Greece, by the way, had former Oregon standout Tyler Dorsey on the the, uh, court as well. He hit a three-pointer with 11 seconds left to send the game into overtime, and then Jokic dominated the extra frame. That is the 5-at-5. Big win for Serbia. Peter, you turned into the uh, World Cup qualifying matches? Not as much as I have been before, but that's a good squad. Tyler Dorsey, is he wasn't born in Greece, right? He just is is he of Greek heritage? Is that what we're talking about? I'm assuming so. Do you know Steven? Uh, I mean, you can get like uh dual citizenship. So he might he might play in Greece professionally is what I'm guessing. Uh and because because of that, like there's rules overseas where those teams can only yeah. have a certain amount of Americans on their team. So if you can get that dual citizenship, uh yeah. it's kind of a sneak around. So he might he have is- done that. He is Greek American, according okay. to his bio. So um, this is like the uh, the Armenian bobsled team back in the Salt Lake City Olympics. It's a bunch of college kids who uh, were born in the United States, but a couple generations earlier, families immigrated from Armenia. They became the Armenian bobsled team and went to the Olympics. They finished last, but they got to go to the Olympics, hang out in the village, be an Olympian. Tyler Dorsey, uh, former duck, and. Uh, uh, getting it done, helping uh, Greece uh, compete in this game. But uh, ultimately, Serbia goes on to win. Uh, guys, uh, I want to talk uh, after the break about the 5 at 5. I want to pick them apart. If you uh, have a thought on Aaron Donald swinging helmets, what should the penalty be for a guy in practice who does this? No penalty? Or should Aaron Donald suffer a fine or a suspension at the Rams' hand? Would they really do that? 503-417-7575. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. All right, let's talk a little Aaron Donald, if you guys don't mind. We did it early in the show, but I think, you know, the uh, audience members who are just tuning in, uh, if you don't know, the Bengals and the Rams got in a big brouhaha at their uh, organized scrimmage today, or practice, joint practice, they call it in the NFL. These things have gone on for a few years, and the Rams and the Bengals got together, and, of course, uh, it wasn't pretty. Um, Aaron Donald 
we now know uh, had two Cincinnati Bengals helmets and he was swinging them around. Doesn't appear that anybody got significantly injured. Does that change the calculus here, guys? That like he didn't hit somebody, knock somebody out. Nobody's sitting around with a brain injury. Uh, does that change the equation? It it does for me because again, if you're you know you bust someone's nose, you're doing something like that. I mean, there probably has to be some sort of punishment. But otherwise, this is just a preseason scrum that got out of hand. We see this every year in the NFL. Now, did it get? A little more out of hand than the other ones. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not good optics to have Aaron Donald swinging him around like he's a, you know, American Ninja Warrior or something like that. But ultimately, to me, this happens. Look, they played in the Super Bowl. No harm, no foul. See, I think it doesn't matter to me. I think the optics of it look bad. And I I would like to think that the NFL is going to be a little proactive and say, you know what, we really don't want this to happen. And just because he didn't hit anybody, we're not going to suspend him. We're not going to punish him. You know, it's a bad look for the NFL to have guys swinging helmets around as weapons, in my mind. And maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm not a football guy. I'm not a tough guy. But, uh, you know, to me, you can't be swinging around helmets as a weapon. So I think I think he deserves a suspension for just one game because it was a practice. And what, you know, the NFL didn't necessarily, you know, it's not a preseason game. It was on national TV, but it was caught on video. Fans saw it. It's all over Twitter now. So I think there should be some type of suspension for him because the NFL's got to make a precedent and say we can't have players swinging helmets around as weapons. I, I wonder, does it matter to you guys that the NFL says, look, we're not in charge of discipline at practices? Does the NFL need to revisit that in when it comes to joint practices because it is the league? I think so. I think so. I think it was social media now and that all eyes are on the NFL you know, 24-7, 365 days a year. I think the NFL should have some power to say, you know what, we can suspend people if you're doing wrong things at practice because, you know, it is an NFL event, right? I I might be wrong, but I would consider it an NFL event. So ultimately, I think they should be able to be in charge and make a decision like that if they really feel that way. Yeah, to be honest, I didn't know that they uh, weren't uh, in charge of these uh, joint practices, which I guess makes sense because, again, we and we've said this three times, why in the world would you have the Bengals and the Rams practice together? Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's like when it happened, I was like, well, what do you expect? These teams just played in the Super Bowl. One of them got a parade. Everybody, you know, they got rings, they got bonuses, and the other ones just got sent home and told, hey, you may not get back here. Uh, and I think in the end, like, there's a bunch of Bengals players who probably have some leftover feelings. Yeah. I mean- Oh, go ahead, yeah, especially at Aaron Donald. Again, those yeah. final two plays in the fourth quarter, it was that guy. It wasn't like Matthew Stafford, you know, went deep for some heroics or something like that. He's getting mixed up. And again, if anyone got hit with a helmet, I, I mean, I'm certainly not going to victim blame. I'm curious what set this thing off. What set Aaron Donald off? Again, no excuse. You can't be doing that. But I wonder if they had a little something extra for him. Oh, yeah. There was probably some something extra th- after that. And remember, he was a big story <laughs> in that, that Super Bowl. And so uh, it's disappointing, though. It's not what we all want to hear or be talking about, but, but it does raise a question. All right, if I can have you guys have two teams from any sport do a joint practice together, and you can get a bag of popcorn and a soda and a front row seat for it, what teams do you want to see have a joint practice? Mm-hmm. 503-417-7575. Who are those two teams you would love to see practice against each other? I'm going to tell you right now, I'd love to see Oregon and Oregon State in football have a joint practice tomorrow. I will be there with popcorn to watch it because they'll play each other later in the year. There's some bad feelings left over from 
uh, a couple of seasons ago when Oregon State uh, had the goal line situation and Tristan Jebbia, the quarterback, took a shot to the knee. I think these two teams, uh, any rivals I would love to see in a joint practice. How about you guys? I think if I could go all-time, if I could just pick all-time teams, all time. I would love to see like the Chiefs when they have Patrick Holmes, Tyreek Hill, they're rolling versus the greatest show on turf and the Los Angeles Rams. I think that would be a fun matchup, just fireworks everywhere of just offense, offense, offense. I think there would be some crazy throws, crazy catches. I would love to see that. Uh, and then I think on the basketball side, I would just love to rewatch the 2001 Western Conference Finals again, uh, Blazers-Lakers, just because the Blazers should have won that series. They yeah. should have been in the finals, should have won the NBA championship. I just want to see it again. I want to see the Blazers get the win this time. Do you think, Stephen, let me ask you, because I've talked with this about former Blazers players and executives. They feel like if they would have won that series – of course they win the NBA title, because I think it was the Pistons, right? The, uh, or, Pacers. Excuse me, Pacers, Pacers. That ended up uh, being the opponent. The Blazers win that. Do they then repeat the next year instead of the Lakers repeating? And are we talking about a Blazers dynasty instead of a Lakers dynasty? I think you very well could be. Uh, you know, Going back to that Game 7, they were up by, what, 17 to 18 points in the fourth quarter? Something like that. Brian Shaw hit a bunch of threes. I think, <sighs> I think you're right. Like That very well could have started a dynasty. I think it would have been a big you know, a bigger rivalry between the Lakers and the Blazers. But do you but do you think the Lakers break up in the way the Blazers remember the Blazers yeah, they lose they that series. Up. The Blazers imploded, right? I don't, they I don't blew think up the so. roster. I don't think so. I think Kobe and Shaq because they hadn't won one yet. Right? I think if right. they had won an NBA championship and then the Blazers beat them, I think they could have argued and imploded. But since they hadn't got one yet, I think they would still be hungry to try to get that first championship. Peter, Peter, correct me if I'm wrong, but was part of the narrative entering that final game that was part of the narrative, hey, can the Lakers win big with Kobe and Shaq? I remember that being in play. Yeah, and they hadn't been together a real long time. It was three years, I think. It might have been their fourth year together. And, you know, they'd made a few runs, but they hadn't gotten over the hump yet. I don't know that they would have been broken up that offseason, but then you look and you go, if they didn't get that one, maybe they retool differently and they never get one, and then say two, three years from now, they do end up getting broken up. I don't know. I don't know. I want to know who you would like to see in a joint practice. 503-417-7575. Michael's in Vancouver. Michael, who do you want to see? I want to, I'm want to. i not a fan of either team, but I would like to see Cincinnati Bengals against the Pittsburgh Steelers that practice. Mm. That's, that black and blue. Uh, that would be a that would be a fist fight with with uh, brass knuckles. I don't know. Wouldn't that be fun to watch though? How about this one? How about Denver Broncos with Russell Wilson against the Seahawks in a joint practice? Anybody up for that? Anything goes. The Austin <laughs> Chief shot him. <laughs> Full scrimmage joint practice. Russell Wilson at quarterback. Do you think the Seahawks would go after him, or do you think that they have respect for him and they'd be like, you know what, it's just business, no hard feelings? That's a good question. I, I don't think they would cheap shot him. I think they would be yeah. somewhat respectful to him. I don't, I don't think they'd go out of their way to cheap shot. But you know, obviously, if they get their get their chance to give him a good lick, they definitely would uh, go a little extra harder. I think at him because he, you know, it's not like he traded himself. He kind of did, but he, he, did, yeah. he didn't didn't really like he didn't he didn't actually do it, but he kind of did it. Uh, how about uh, how about a Warriors Brooklyn Nets scrimmage with Kevin Durant involved? Yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be interesting because you know Draymond and Durant would get a little, uh, mm-hmm. little feisty with each other. Let's let it happen, pro am style. Not not in the gym in Seattle though. <laughs> Some parting thoughts coming up. Leave it here. Mm-hmm.
Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Peter Sampson uh, coming up top of the hour right here in Portland on 750 The Game. What do you got? Yeah, I mean, this Chet Holmgren news. I kind of want to talk about this. Is this a situation where we're going to look back in five years and go, it was so obvious in hindsight? I mean, we see this all the time. Odin, for example, you know, some other guys maybe got a few years in before these kinds of issues. But I'm wondering if the Chet Holmgren injury, if it really does impact his career, is it... Are we correcting our thinking? Are we changing our thinking to go, how did we miss this? It was so clear, never should have been taken. I want to kick that around. Interesting. I like that. But th- you could play that what-if game so much. Right. Portland could do it better than anybody. <laughs> Sam Bowie, what if? Yeah. Bill Walton, what if? Like, I think, which one's the big, the biggest tragedy of Walton, Bowie, Odin? Which of those three, in your mind, is the biggest tragedy. I mean, Walton was clearly the best player. Bowie, you know, I mean, if you include the actual selection of Bowie, not just, the, you know, you missed on the coin flip for Akeem. You didn't draft Jordan. To me, though, I mean, Greg Oden, before that actual, you know, where his knee exploded against the Rockets, that, like, 15-game run he had before that, he was a legit 19 and 12 with three blocks. He was like prime David Robinson. It was unbelievable how good that kid was going to be. You know, the, he with Roy and Aldridge, they were like 50 and 12 when they actually all played together. To me, that's that's the big what if. Yeah, yeah. I I think for me it's Walton because how good they won the championship. They came back the next year. They were even better until that foot injury haunted him. And I wonder. If Walton had stayed healthy, if the Blazers might have won three or four in that era, and we would be talking about you know something different. Stephen, what's your biggest uh, what if? Yeah, I think it's Walton because the question is if Walton stayed healthy his entire career, how would he be viewed all time? Would he be a top ten player of all time? He very well could be. Like he was that talented and that good. And he would have been here in Portland during his prime. Like you said, they came back better that next season. So for me, I think it's Walton because. They could have built that dynasty with him as one of the best players of all time in the NBA history. So, uh, yeah, just unfortunate that, uh, you know, the injuries caught up to him. Yeah, I think to me it's like, you know, you play this game in any sport, any time. Like, you know, there's so many players that in baseball, basketball, football history, uh, you know, I, I grew up a Warriors fan, but I remember the, you know, the era of the Warriors that I was paying attention to. It was, it was you know, it was the Len Bias uh, era of you know tragedy in the NBA and Hank Gathers in college basketball and uh, I think you look back and you go what could have been Thurman Munson with the Yankees Roberto Clemente with the Pirates like they're go across sports like in your mind guys you know big what ifs I also would love to have seen Bowie at his best and healthy for an extended period of time and at least he had some semblance of a career but I think it was really unfair what happened to him, you know, when we look back at it. One of the bigger what-ifs for me in Trailblazer history is what if Paul Allen doesn't get sick and die? Because the Blazers got swept by the Pelicans, and there was all the reports that he wanted to fire everybody, including Neil O'Shea, Terry Stotts, everybody gone. And that was, you know, a couple years ago, prime Damian Lillard in his 30s or in his 20s still. 
there would have been a huge change of what Damian Lillard asked out of Portland. Would they have actually built a good team around Damian Lillard in Portland? Mm. I think that's one of the bigger what ifs because what happened was they ended up going to the Western Conference Finals the next year because of some luck, get swept, and then Neil Shea gets more extension, gets more power within the organization. Mm. You're right. And you think about, you know, I think you, you and I talked about this yesterday, Stephen, a little bit. I think we were off air, but it was the what are the worst things that have ever happened to the Blazers? Paul Allen's death is in there because of the changes that would have happened. But let's even go back to the, them making the Western Conference Finals in a year where I think if they, if they don't get there, they probably are forced to make changes. And, and it justified the moves that Neil O'Shea was making, right, to, to get guys around the boundaries, around the margins. It justified what he was doing. He can say, I got this team to the Western Conference Finals. We can continue to build from here. And it was the bad – it was a bad – the thought by him. It, and it's so wild that that whole run, all those matchups lining up how they did, it all came down to Anthony Simons get, finally getting minutes in a meaningless game and going off in the, the fourth quarter and beating the Kings. None of that would have happened had he not done that. Yeah, they tried to lose the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love this. I love the, the, the things that went wrong in Blazers history. <laughs> Damn it! They made the Western Conference Finals. But it's true because it rationalized everything that was happening and it we all knew that uh it was problematic so there you go uh good stuff peter i can't wait to see what you got coming up on the pulse it's gonna be fantastic to talk about it uh guys do you think chet holmgren ends up having a good career and you now include the injury to the questions about his his physicality i do not because look and and i think the the ceiling is incredibly high as high as you can really see uh in a top draft pick but i just there were so many questions to me it was already iffy is he going to reach that potential i just don't know that he's got that frame i mean i and the the nba here's the thing is it looks like the nba is you know it's moving softer and softer and more multi-skilled and that's in his benefit but there has been sort of a resurgence of strong big men in the nba i don't know that he can hang with them you add these concerns this is a thing that lingers i i don't see it yeah no i i don't think so either just the way it happens the foot injury with a big guy it's troublesome i think going forward and i always had questions about his explosiveness i know he's a really smart player good on the help defense but explosively strength wise i think he's gonna have trouble freaky length and athleticism for a guy who's seven one but you know, I looked at him and I thought, gosh, I think I could post that guy up because I think I can I can move him like Charles Oakley would move him into the second row. But I wonder in the NBA now uh, what will happen with him. Will the narrative be that it was the injury? It gives him an excuse, doesn't it? I want you to leave it here if you're listening in Portland on 750 The Game because Peter Sampson's going to light it up. Uh, otherwise, grab the podcast and we're back tomorrow with another great show. The Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time, just a good time. Have a good night, everybody.